Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher barkarbanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah. Amen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, may you grant us the eyes of Mashiach Yeshua as we dive into your living word. May you infuse us with his spirit and may you bind us to the Lapid. Amen Amen. Shalom everybody. Welcome to the Parsha Drop Zone. Uh, I just am so compelled to just share some uh, previous Parsha as we are heading into the this week's parsha, which we're already in it. So thank you to Captain Yisrael getting us all set and going with the first Aliyah of Parsha Vaera. And Parsha Vaera is not to be confused with Parsha Vaera. You know, it's both of them talk about appearing, but there is a difference. So let's literally just check it out real quick um, because Parsha Vaera is going to start. <clears throat> in this week's uh, tour portion, it's like I'm shuffling a bunch of books around over here because I'm doing some impromptu things today. But I hope everyone is doing well, and I hope as we are heading into this week's parsha that you are just continuing to press in in Amuna with Hashem because the Geula, the redemption, is being hastened because more than ever we're studying His Torah. We're, we're crying out for Messiah Yeshua to be returned to us, and we are not pleased with staying in this exile. And we are also making proselytes, which is what we're supposed to be doing. So making proselytes hastens the redemption. Having children hastens the redemption. Crying out to Hashem hastens the redemption. Remembering the covenant, not only Hashem remembering his covenant, but we also remembering the covenant also hastens the redemption. And what I mean by remembering the covenant is we understand and realize that Hashem being the God of Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. <clears throat> that means something. That means that our head and our source is Yerushalayim. Specifically, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. And, you know, that whole region of the Holy Land, like the place where Hashem has placed His name, that is our HQ. Currently, right now, there's a lot of craziness going on. I get it. But Rome, literally the Vatican and all of that, that is not our HQ. That's the HQ of Asav. That's the HQ of Rome. That's the HQ of the serpent. And that is the HQ of Christianity. And that is probably sounds really offensive, but it's true. And, uh, you know, that's why it's so important for us to understand. Are we followers and doers of the word? Because, you know, Christianity does a really, 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 really how many times can I say really? I'm going to say it again. Really? They do a really great job of explaining the Messiah as far as that he did die for our sins. He was resurrected and he does lead us into newness of life. And we do have the Holy Spirit and we are to be immersed in the name of the Father and the Son. 
and the Holy Spirit. So, like, all of that is completely, like, wow, amazing. But what happens after that? That's the thing. See, Rome stops right there. And they stay stuck in motivational speeches. And I've been there. And, you know, it's, it is what it is. I bring all that up to say, is this important to know, do you want to end up in Rome or do you want to end up in Jerusalem? And furthermore, which one is going to be the one that stands in the Olam Haba? You know, because you understand, you have to understand and realize that the current exile that we are in, which we are, we're in exile. We need to know that. We need to understand that. We need to trust that and believe that. Because being in exile is why we don't have a temple, is why we don't have the Shekinah literally manifest in our presence 24-7. We don't have Levites just literally bringing down praises from Hashemayim so that it can be all up in our ear and really changing us like the Psalms of David type change us, you know, and we don't have Messiah Yeshua literally here with us on the earth and his manifested presence, like i.e. coming down out of the clouds and walking the earth with us. We do have the spirit, which is his stand in, but we don't have we just don't have him here ruling as king on earth. He is ruling as king on earth, but not like completely and fully like what is going to be like when he actually is. Because you understand, when it's that time, we're gathered into Israel. Literally, all the enemies of the covenant will be removed. So we don't have to have these holy wars of, over the mountain, you know, kind of thing. Uh, there will be an abundance of produce going on in the land. I mean, you talk about the story um, in the Torah with the account in the Torah, actually, because it really happened. It's not just a story of the spies from Parashat Shlach, where they go into the land and they see giants and they come back with this giant cluster of grapes. And it took at least four men. Some say six, some say eight. So there's definitely a lot of people it took to carry these grapes. That's the kind of produce that we're going to be having in the Olam Haba when Mashiach returns and we're in the land. Like, Land's going to be producing quite a bit of stuff, so you might as well get a spigot, stick it into one grape, and that's your wine for Shabbat. You know, you ain't going to be buying bottles of wine. Just go out to your vineyard, pluck one grape, bring it in the house, put a little spigot in it, and that'll probably carry you for a while. And yes, we will be keeping the Shabbat when Mashiach returns. So if we're not keeping it now, then what's that mean? That means that we're being in denial, which is not a river in Egypt. Well, denial, the Nile is a river in Egypt, but not denial. Anyway, um, so, you know, we got to understand and grab a hold of these things. So um, keeping the Shabbats, keeping the Yom Tovs, you know, what is Rosh Hodesh? Need to look that up and check it out. You know, read Isaiah, uh, read Yeshiyahu, basically. Isaiah, Yeshiyahu, that's the, the actual name of Isaiah is Yeshiyahu. And um, so anyway, talking about Vaera. And if you look at our Pasuk uh, from this week's Sidra, which is another way to say Parasha, uh, everything pretty much in Hebrew always has at least two or three different ways to say it. So you can say Parasha, you can say Sidra, or you can say Torah portion. 
Torah portion I really I realize is not a Hebrew word, but Torah is a Hebrew word. So that's there's that. But anyway, Vaera, it literally is in our verse three. I appeared. Okay? So the Vav in this word, so it's Vav, Aleph, Resh, Aleph, Vaera. And now notice it doesn't say Vaera. It says Vaera. Vaera. So there's not a Y sound, which would be the Yod, which is in the other parsha we'll talk to and talk about in just a second. But in this, it's literally Yira or Yire, which is to see or, or to be shown. And when you look at the cognate that's used here in our Torah portion, there's an Aleph instead of a Yod right there. And when that is the case, you take the Aleph and that's how you say I in Hebrew. So when you're doing all that, just know the Aleph in there. Like when you say that um, Ani, you know, is I. And then, um, I mean, there's just different. I can't think of anything right now to uh, really point this out. But, uh, oh, Eshma. So adding an Aleph in front of Toda Rabah Hashem. Adding an Aleph. Adding an Aleph in front of Shema means I will listen. I understand. I obey. I comprehend. Know, believe, and trust, and do. I Shema. So Eshma. So put an Aleph in front of that. That's how you say I. So again, here, this is what it's saying is I appeared. So and I appear, basically, is that word. So let's go back to Parsha Vayera, which I believe it starts in Bereshit chapter 18. Yes, it does. Baruch Hashem. Now, this is cool because this was a fun week for me. I got to podcast with the incredible Talmud. He hulked out and he threw trains. He threw skyscrapers and it was awesome. So uh, they were empty skyscrapers and empty trains, which was even more awesome. Because uh, it's not awesome if people are in there and you don't want to do that. But anyway, I digress. Just uh, shout out to Mahavivi, the incredible Talmud. You truly do live up to your name. All right. So in Parsha Vayera, Bereshit, chapter 18, verse 1, you see that it is Vav Yod Resh Aleph. And now look at the way Hashem appears. It says, Hashem appeared to him in the plains of Mamre. So this is removing from a first person, i.e. Hashem isn't speaking here, even though he is, because remember, the Torah is the word of Hashem. So literally, Hashem's words is the Torah. So a manifestation of Hashem is his very voice, which is the Torah. And Mashiach Yeshua is the manifestation of the voice of Hashem, which is why the word took on flesh. So whenever you see kol, et kol, Hashem, anywhere in the text, you can know that's another picture of Messiah Yeshua. So before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Side note, really big side note. I'm going to swerve real hard. Got to. Because, you know, uh, on the Gregorian calendar or the non-Jewish calendar that typically is the most popular, at least here in America, is that... December the 25th just happened and it definitely has been dubbed a corporate holiday so um, we don't even call it that other name anymore but 
I realize that may sound offensive too, but not meant to be. It's just here to tell the truth. So um, on that day, it is said that that is the birth of the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is called the Son of God. I get it. But the Son of God was actually celebrated for his birth on the December 25th. But like the S-U-N, Son God. Okay? Like, uh, this is like our Nimrod. This is like our Sol Invictus. Okay? All of the solstice and wintery type stuff. That's what's going on. And you also need to know that December 25th, is the beginning of an eight-day holiday that ends on January the 1st. And so that's why you notice that those two days are taken off. Okay, that's why there's a corporate holiday on both of those days. And where do we see that in Judaism? Because, you know, everything was taken from Judaism, not vice versa. Because I guarantee you that this eight-day festival was not what Hashem looked at to give us the commandment to say for our eight-day festivals, like I'm talking uh, Sukkot in particular, because Pesach is a seven-day festival, and we take off on the first and the seventh, which is the first and the last day. But let's look at eight days, which is making this, as I'm speaking about it, way, way more intense right now, because is Messiah born on this eight-day festival? namely Sukkot, which just so happens to be Hashem dwelling with us, and the festival of Yosef is the eighth day, and remember if someone's born eight days later, they have a big uh, Brit Milah, that's a big party, festivities, and just so happens on the eighth day of Sukkot, which is not really Sukkot, but it's a holiday that's attached to Sukkot, and it's called the festival of Yosef, a.k.a. or commonly known as Simchat Torah or biblically known as Shemini Atzeret. Okay, rabbinically it's been dubbed Simchat Torah, the joy of Torah, because on that day we finish the Torah and start the Torah. We literally connect the last letter of Torah to the first letter of Torah, which is Lamed and Bet, which make the word Lev, which is the heart, the Torah being the heart of God, and who is the heart of God? That is Messiah Yeshua. Okay, because the heart resonates in the upper part of the body of Hashem. And so if you look at the body of Hashem and Mashiach being the upper part of him, okay, and then we call ourselves the hands and feet of Hashem, we're like the extremities of Hashem. So we're like the extensions from the heart. You know, if we're connected to Messiah Yeshua, so we're in the body of Mashiach, which is an image of Hashem, which we're not supposed to make. So you got this idea that people are walking around creating statues and keychains and pictures of the Messiah, even though they're calling him by his Zaphonot Paneach equivalent in Greek, which is Yeshu Christos or uh, I don't know how to say uh, Christ in Greek yet. Uh, it's not in front of me. But anyway, because I'm on my swerve, I'm going to stay here. Okay, so they're making this JC emblem, okay, which is the image, okay, and it's like Hashem said, don't make one, you know, and Rabbi Griffin so beautifully brought down on Shabbat, okay, like literally the Shabbat that we just uh, exited from, like less than 24 hours ago from this podcast point anyway, um, he said that 
Hashem never said he didn't have an image. I know, and it says in Devarim that you saw no image when Hashem opened the heavens up and spoke to you. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have one. Okay. And I know uh, part of our 13 principles is that Hashem is not corporeal. Well, yeah, that's cool because Hashem really isn't corporeal. But his image can be corporated. Okay. So, like, in other words, if you take who the word of God is and you put it on a Torah scroll, or if you put it in a printed humash, you've just made an image of Hashem, which is why we don't take it in the bathroom, which is why we don't like mark it up and defile it, which is why we don't put it on the floor or throw it out of windows or put it on the top of our car and drive on a rainy day. This is why we also don't take this uh, image of Hashem. I mean, come on, man. The Hebrew, the Torah, like this is the image of Hashem. Okay, so and then we're going to just completely throw that out the window when it comes to Messiah. So it's like, but this is the Messiah. This is like the most epic form of Hashem right here. The word becoming flesh, you know, which is happening during Sukkot. Because you realize when we build our sukkah, that represents the shadow of our faith. Literally, the Kabbalists and the Kabbalah and the Kosher Kabbalah, the Torah Kabbalah of Sukkot, the Samic, the Kaf, and the Hey, Sukkah. That's how you spell Sukkah. If you uh, ch uh, reverse that and make it Hey, Kaf, Hakos, which is the cup, and you're in this cup, you're in this Sukkah, you're in this dwelling, this inhabitation that is completely fragile but it is a manifestation of what we believe in and what we do as believers. Okay, and we're sitting underneath that. And you know how we have to see through the roof and have it be, you know, thatching like vegetation and things like that. That is a manifestation of the spiritual smoke, ketoret, incense that is used on Yom Kippur with which to enter into the Holy of Holies. Okay, I mean, I, I know it's like, where's the sources on all that? Well, we'll get there on uh, Parsha Karemot. And also when we do Sukkot uh, drashas and Yom Kippur drashas, you can see all of those sources within that realm of study. So just, it's all good. It's not sources hatred, I promise. It's just, do you really want me to give you, you know, like, this is from section one, paragraph two, code number 335, and then match that over here with this. I mean, I could do that, but I don't want to be a computer or a robot. Um, so just roll with me. Sleek out. So, uh, yeah, so the smoke from Yom Kippur, which, which you enter into the Holy of Holies, which dispels death, by the way, and it also creates an entryway into the Holy of Holies, just like when the mountain was smoking, Mount Sinai, and it was blazed of fire, and Moshe had to go up the mountain to receive the Torah, and the mountain was smoking, and he's walking into that. That's the same picture of walking into the Holy of Holies. He's walking into Hashemayim when that happens, and uh, Keher Tumash literally brings this down in Parsha Mishpatim, that the angel who said, come up to Hashem, because you realize in... Uh, Shemo, I mean, we're coming up on this real quick. I can source that out for you real quick. Um, this is uh, Shemot 24, 
Parsha Mishpatim. Check it out because, I mean, this is even codified in the Talmud. This is Mem Tet speaking. Because listen, here's the text. It says, Ve'el Moshe Amar Ale El Adonai. To Moshe he said, Go up to Hashem, you Aharon, you know, Nadav and Avihu and the 70 elders of Israel. So like Hashem is saying going up to Hashem is basically what you could read. But it's like, well, it doesn't say Hashem. It just says, but he, it says just Amar. So Ve'el Moshe and to Moshe Amar, he said, and it's like, who is the he that is speaking? And um, I believe it was Rabbi Akiva who was codified on this. And was saying like, yeah, that's Memtet, you know. And so it's just like, wow. So and I mean, again, so Moshe is at the end of Mishpatim going up the mountain and it's smoky and it's like he can't breathe. He can't see. And it's like he had a path created for him through the smoke to enter up to Hashem. And that path was called Memtet. So Yeshua says, I am the way, the truth and the life, you know, Yochanan. Chapter 14. So anyway, uh, all that is going on. So when you look at Sukkot versus this winter solstice festival of celebrating a sun god and uh, Rome is really the progenitor of really making this popular and then taking uh, commercialism to take it over the top with the big red guy and Coca-Cola and polar bears and choo-choo trains that are in the mountains. And it's like, what are you carrying on a train that's going through snowy mountains? And why is the center around polar bears and Coke and a red guy in a suit who's breaking into people's houses, supposedly giving them things that they asked for that was reported by little minions that were watching children from a shelf to see if they were being good or bad. And, you know, it's just like, it's just a really weird thing because it's just like, but no, this is when Messiah Yeshua was born. It's like, yeah, so Messiah Yeshua was born on a holiday that you bow down to a tree so you can get your gift from under it. And you have to make sure that tree doesn't fall over. So you have to anchor it down some kind of way. Oh, that sounds like Jeremiah chapter 10. Whoops. Uh, but anyway, uh, then you're like, you know, going into all sorts of crazy debt because you want to try to outdo people and gift giving and if somebody gets you something you feel bad that you didn't get them something but it's like you have to get them something because this is that this is that season this is the most wonderful time of the year and it's like no it isn't when did when does it a thing to to force someone to give you a gift and first of all when you give someone a gift it should be out of the kindness of your heart it shouldn't be because you're expecting something back you know, this is why Zadaka and, and paying our tithe is so important, because if we have a giving heart, there's never a time on our calendar that we're going to go, you know what, I'm going to get a gift some, for somebody because it's that time of year and they need to make sure that they feel guilty and give me something back. And it's like, OK, that may not be the thing, but that does happen. OK, I mean, you do create that awkwardness of like, oh, well, well thanks. And it's just kind of like, well, you got anything that you're going to give to me? Like, when people ask you, you know, have you finished your eczema shopping? And you're like, mm, no, I don't. Uh, no, no shopping. Like, if I want to get a gift from somebody for somebody, you know, I'll go get it for them. And so it's just kind of weird. But anyway, so just know that there are two eight day festivals. There's one for righteousness and there's one for the side of impurity. OK, literally. So um, 
I was going to give you a few uh, insights on um, New Year's um, because, you know, uh, that's not really something we want to celebrate as well uh, because of basically what that entails. But just know it's not one of the it's not one of the Yom Tovs that Hashem has given us. Look, look in the Torah, look in Vayikra chapter 23. Why don't we just go there? I'm, I mean, I got a humash open in front of me. I got to use it, right? So, Vayikra chapter 23, Parasha and more. Check this out. These are the festivals that Hashem has given to us, and it's very explicit. So, first of all, you need to know Hashem gave us the Shabbat. And Midrash from Parsha Shemot said Moshe was the first one to initiate the Shabbat. Like, i.e., Hashem chose to give us the Shabbat through Moshe. Yeah, the Shabbat that's spoken of in Bereshit chapter 1, uh, or chapter 2, because chapter 2 begins the seventh day and Hashem blessed it. And that's the Kiddush we say on Arab Shabbat over our cup, our Hakos, which is our Sukkah. So we're holding up our Sukkah, which is our Emunah, which is our salvation, our thankfulness and gratefulness to Hashem for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light that we may praise him and glorify him and Bezrat Hashem gather in more divine sparks so they can do the same thing so we can have a lot of good times and rejoicing bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in Hashemayim but anyway uh, so you got the Shabbat first of all and uh, again, through Moshe, Hashem gifted us the Shabbat. And that's what happened when Moshe went out among the, his brethren. And uh, he was saying, hey, these people need a break. Like, give them a day off. You know, let them work for six days and give them a day off. And, and you know, so that's the Shabbat. So we began the Shabbat in the midst of idolatry, ultimately bringing us out into the wilderness to where we had the Shabbat and that's where the manna and the double portion happened on the sixth day. So that way on the seventh day for the Shabbat, you wouldn't have to really worry about going out and looking for manna. Unless you're, uh, uh, what am I going to call him? Uh, I know it's Day-Day and, uh, oh yeah, Day-Day and Avi, which is Dathan and Avi wrong. So Day-Day and Avi were like going out and being like, oh man, people are being like, obedient and observant to Hashem and like not looking for manna and stuff. I know there's somebody out here that got some, some weak faith. So you know what? Uh, you know, so this is day day talking to, uh, Avi. And so Dathan is talking to Avi Ram and he's like, you know what? Why don't you take some of your manna and I'm going to take some of my manna. We're going to spew it out around the camp. Like just put it like hide it like, like little, uh, smeaster eggs for people to find. And it's like, okay. And so people were like, what? There's manna out here? I thought Hashem said we don't. Well, you know, now that I'm out here, I might as well just go gather some manna. So they're like going out now on the seventh day and gathering manna because it's just like the little temptresses over here, Day and, uh, and Avi, are just like doing this. And it's just like, come on, guys. Why are you doing that to people? Creating stumbling blocks. And then furthermore, when there was told only gather an omer, that's what really is what the uh, commentary brings down is that gathering the manna uh, every day on the six days, you're supposed to gather enough for what you need for the day. I mean, obviously on the sixth day, you gather a double portion to get ready for Shabbat. But on the other days, you just gather what you need for the day. And it's just like, yeah. So again, Day Day and Avi were like, ah, we're just going to gather in way more. I mean, we don't even need this, but let's just take it. 
and they did and all sorts of maggots and flies and rotten and all kind of just bleh, kind of stuff is coming out of their own tents and it's just like come on guys what are you doing we're inside the clouds of glory right now and you stinking up the place for real like literally stinking up the place i don't know about you but it's just like if you're in the clouds of glory completely beautiful weather it's amazing there's a light show going on it may or may not be dark outside you can't tell and it doesn't matter to you because you're inside of shem and it's just like okay and it's just like uh you got these two guys over here that's like truly disrespecting the living space on top of their disobedience they're creating stumbling blocks but then they're also stinking up the place and it's just like come on guys you know and it's just like they were allowed to hang around until good old cousin Corey decided to start a rebellion against Moshe and be like, you and Aharon take too much on yourselves. You think y'all are the high priests and you can just go out and dub other people as high priests and all this kind of stuff. And y'all forgot about me. And first of all, you know, or and next of all, um, I can really be high priest and everybody should be high priest because we're all holy. Moshe is like falling on my face right now because I'm not in charge here. I mean, I'm the leader, but it's what Hashem wills. I've only done what he said from the beginning. I did not choose to be here. If it was left up to me, I would have still been in Midian hanging out with sheep and my wife and my two sons. And it would have been all cool. And y'all would have been in Egypt. But that's you know, that's not taken into consideration. It's also not taken into consideration that Hashem said, oh, by the way, Aharon, uh, Nadab, Avihu, Itamar, and Eleazar shall be the Kohen Gadols, and y'all should be the Levites, and the whole waving ceremony that we just did in Parsha Naso, and y'all were all like dubbed and brought into literally the temple service, and uh, you totally didn't say anything then, but now you're going to wait is Parshar Korak, and now we're going to do this. We're going to Korak and roll now. And it's just like, yeah, I don't care, Moshe. You're just wrong. And it's just like, okay, well, I'm going to give you the night, and uh, we'll see in the morning, and we'll talk to Hashem in front of the tent of meeting, and we'll see what he says. And you just got to love this story, man, because, I mean, it's just incredible. I don't know what I would do if I was Moshe, because if Cousin Corey came at me with that, I don't know. I mean, I I would be holding a sapphire staff in my hand that has done all sorts of crazy things to Egypt. And um, it turns into a snake like a like a, a transformer. So I could have just been like snake mode on them and just been done with it. But no. Um, anyway, this is humility. And uh, apparently I'm being very, very transparent. So uh, <laughs> sleek. Uh, but anyway, uh, I definitely need a Yeshua. So. Uh, every day working out my faith with salvation or working out my salvation with fear and trembling is what I do. And I do need to make Teshuvah after I make Teshuvah. So, man, Hashem helped me do that. All right. Selah. But anyway, so in the morning, cousin Corey shows up with his homeboys after they had a whole night of making cake and passing it out around the camps. You can talk to uh, Hawk Ayin, which is uh, David Ben Gabriel. And Zolan, which is Yosef Ben Shulam. There are two of our Lapidim at our shul that are just absolutely insane and ridiculous. Um, they're just awesome people. 
Uh, so bless you guys. I love y'all so much and y'all are very inspiring to me. But uh, they have this whole thing about the cake that Korat gave out and going from tent to tent, like stirring up, you know, people to be against Moshe. And it's just like, oh, like the Second Timothy passage about people going from tent to tent and just taking over weak willed people and leading them into rebellion and all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that's what Korak did. And uh, Day Day and Avi, they also did it, too. So when the showtime at the Apollo happened in the morning with the fire pans, Hashem opened up the ground, swallowed all of the people who were in rebellion, shot out fire from the Mishkan and consumed the people who had their fire pans, as well as uh, Korak and Dede and Avi and all their households as they were going down into the pit. And that pit that they were going into was Gehenna. So that was a, a go straight to Gehenna uh, type event. And uh, that is the true meaning of it's going down for real. But anyway, uh, so that's why we say it's going up or uh, get you some instead of it's going down. Because, you know, that's a incorrect way to say that. Just kidding. But anyway. So, yeah, that really did happen. And so um, so we just got to know, where do we stand? Do we stand on the Temple Mount or do we stand on Rome, like in the city square that apparently looks like a key and a lock at the same time and has a building in the form of a serpent head and the lobby or the reception area or the auditorium, wherever, where, where people are sitting and having their assembly, it looks like the mouth of a serpent. So... I mean, I'm just saying you decide because when you see the temple, the temple looks like a tefillin box and the tefillin box is called the uh, the binding and attachment to Hashem. And also the temple literally of Shlomo, when it was built, it looked like a lion that was laying down and crouched. And then it also says that the fire on the outer altar was called Ariel. You know, you can read that in um, Yeshiyahu as well. He talks about Ariel being the uh, the fire on the altar, and that fire also crouched on the altar like a lion. So you got two lions versus the two serpents. So which one are you gonna go with? And remember, Hashem is a fiery lion. And there's that. And remember, uh, in this week's Torah portion of Vayera, the serpent swallowed. The serpents of uh, Pharaoh and his sorcerers. So, you know, that whole showdown of is it is it the primordial serpent or is it going to be Mashiach's uh, hand, which Mashiach is likened to a serpent as well. So it's like you're going to take the holy serpent or the evil and pure serpent, you know, because um, we clearly see who wins that battle. But anyway. Parsha Amor tells us the festivals of Hashem, because if we're standing with Hashem, if we're a part of Yisrael, if we're a part of Messiah, Yeshua's Talmudim, his children, his offspring, then we're looking at the festivals of Shabbat. And then it says, for six days you may labor on the seventh day, uh, uh, on the seventh, I'm reading verse three. For six days labor may be done in the seventh day of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Shabbat for Hashem and all your dwelling places. Okay, so that's the first festival. Then you go right into Pesach. And then notice in Pesach, there is the 14th, 
which is where the lamb is slaughtered. And then you have the Seder, okay, which is really the beginning of the 15th. So the 14th ends and you start the 15th that night. So your Seder happens on the 14th, 15th of Nisan. And this is when Mashiach Yeshua was crucified. Uh, he was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, like before sundown, which is why it was important to get him off of the stake before sundown so that on the 15th of Nisan, his body was in the tomb. As we began to partake of the two uh, sacrificed lambs that day, which remember Mashiach represents two sacrificed lambs. He represents Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. And uh, both of them definitely resurrected. So that's there's that. Even though uh, we know that it's Mashiach ben Yosef, who is the one that is slain, you know, he's called the war Messiah. So but still he him and in himself, he represents that essence of the two Mashiachs because, you know, there's the Pesach lamb and then the, the Hagiga lamb, like the festive lamb that you're supposed to partake of. One lamb you eat like literally um with the Pesach and then one lamb the second lamb you eat after you've had a full stomach and this is the picture we see with the Afikomen and our current Seder of today where we break that Afikomen in half we partake of the first piece and we hide the second piece like it's wrapped in linen it's hidden and a child goes and finds it and we bring it back and then we partake of that you know so if we're looking at the type and shadow of this it's the children who are out seeking the resurrected lamb. And that's what we need to be. That's why Messiah Yeshua says that we need to be like children so that we can enter in and partake of the kingdom. But keeping going on here in our Parsha Amor, chapter 33 of Vayikra, Leviticus, uh, you got the 15th of Nisan, and then you got the festival of first fruits that happens on the 16th of Nisan. And... Um, where is that at? That is actually, shall wave the omer as a favor. Yeah, uh, that's verse 11, okay? So then it goes into talking about the omer. So the festival of first fruit kicks off the omer count, which heads us up to 50 days to Shabbat. Okay, so the 16th of Nisan would have been the third day because you look at the 14th, the 15th, and here's the 16th. And Mashiach Yeshua is resurrected over there. And it was a nighttime uh, resurrection because it was basically with the service of Havdalah from the 15th into the 16th that, uh, you know, now we're bringing forth the fire. We're bringing forth light into the darkness. And that would have been the resurrection of Messiah. So the Midrash, Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, brings down the fact that when Adam was getting kicked out of the garden, for uh, sinning before the Shabbat, literally after he was created, he sinned right before Shabbat started. It was just like, you were created for how long and you sin? You know, and it's just like, so how quick are we prone to sin, even though like we just were saturated in the Kedushah of Hashem? And it's just like, man, if we get distracted at any moment, it just takes us off the derrick and we just burn and crash. You know, it's just like, well, Good thing we are attached to the one who is the life and the resurrection and we walk in Shuva on Shuva. Like there's never a moment where we realize, oh, I don't need to make Shuva today. Baruch Hashem, I'm so righteous. 
And then as soon as you even begin to think or utter that, you just get your head cut off. And it's just like, oh, I died again. And it was funny because I was telling some of my mishpaka um, from Shabbat when I, we were hanging out in Droshin and stuff. And I was saying, man, you know, I really, I got, I got messed up this week because earlier in the week, I was like all like really battling and pushing hard and like trying to rejoice. And then I like, I, I literally was victorious. I literally made it through my challenges and my struggles and was able to say, you know, I'm rejoicing in my suffering and like Baruch Hashem, like I'm doing great, even though times are hard and, and I have so many challenges and the thoughts in my head are just like you're literally eating all my cake and it's just like man but you know Hashem and and righteousness of Messiah Yeshua that I have an opportunity to walk in like I'm going for it and so I was like telling everybody you know how like this was happening and as soon as I began to like throw my hand up in the air and like celebrate it was like like I got taken out like like a linebacker blitzing just like I didn't even see it you know and for the rest of the week I was just out and then Arab Shabbat table was my resurrection so it's just kind of like oh my gosh we can't even afford to celebrate like it is that bad so if we're walking around like literally just bearing these yokes of uh of weight which i want to bring up a quick drosh here from akav our jewish gambit that he sent to um just a few of us avengers and zadaka league members he said um he was reading on breslev and it says yet the true zadakim and especially the soul of mashiach the true zadakim and especially the soul of mashiach so the soul of mashiach is equal to the Zadokim. So anyway, there's that. And it says, strive to overcome the stern justice on their own. They therefore welcome their excruciatingly difficult lives. By doing so, they are capable of mitigating stern judgments for the entire world. Yeah, he just said that like it's okay. But anyway, since they live lives on such prodigious, on such a prodigious level, their prayers are capable of accomplishing anything. This explains what Rebbe Nachman teaches, that the weapon of Mashiach is prayer. That weapon of Hashem's anointed king, David, who kills bears, lions, and Goliaths, is the same weapon that his descendant Mashiach will soon use to disperse our physical and spiritual enemies speedily in our days. Amen. So, yeah, he uh, just dropped that on us like it was OK. And it's just kind of like, wow. So, yeah. So we got some difficulties, painful lives. We're suffering. But remember, if we don't suffer with them, we can't reign with them. So Mashiach Yeshua is suffering. I brought this down last week and uh, Rebbe Griffin brought this down as well. Mashiach sitting at the gates of Rome, wrapping his bandages with the lepers. And remember, the Shekinah is also in exile, suffering with us. So, uh, you know, you look at the, the Shekinah and Mashiach suffering with us in this exile. So we're suffering with them so that we can reign with them because we got a fellowship in suffering. OK, so, um, you know, so don't celebrate. I want you to live. OK, live and don't die. All right. So let's uh, we'll celebrate when Mashiach gets here. But until then, 
uh, we going in, like between M and O, like M N O N is in the middle of M and O. That was terrible. I know. I'm sorry. Okay, so back to what I was saying about the festivals of Hashem, though. And isn't it so beautiful that Hashem has given us literally holidays? And okay, so since we're on a Kav, so back to him. He also said it's just crazy. Like the Gregorian calendar is just built off of one pagan festival to the next pagan festival. It's like, yeah, we just finished with Xmas. Now we're going to go into New Year's. And now when we finish with New Year's, then we're going to go into the Love Day. And then the Love Day is going to lead into the Bunny Holiday. And then the Bunny Holiday is going to lead into 4th of July. But guess what? 4th of July is like legit. It's like patriotism on a hundred and fitty. You know, so we stand proudly and support that because uh, as part of our exile, the land that we're in, we're actually supposed to pray for and support, you know, and, and try to build up something beautiful and, and holy into it. So Jews celebrating the 4th of July and like literally making America great again, like that will be really cool. But anyway, um, and then right out the 4th of July, you get ready for the uh the pumpkin day and then after the pumpkin day you're getting ready for the turkey day and then the turkey day you're back to the other day so i mean it's just kind of like i don't see any of those in the bible like or the torah specifically anywhere but hashem is like i got you though if you really want to know what holidays i need y'all to be going all out in and that you really will like if you actually do them here they are so anyway so we got the Shabbat, we got the Pesach, we got the Festival of First Fruits, Resurrection Day, uh, at, which is when Mashiach left the tomb and leads us in the Shabbat, which is also called Pentecost. In the meantime, we're counting the Omer, and as we count the Omer, we lead up to Shabbat, which is this wonderful celebration of the Ruach HaKodesh and the Torah, uh, which are one and the same. And then you got Rosh Hashanah, which is like crowning the king day, the great trumpet blast day, the resurrection of the dead uh, and the final redemption day, you know, that kind of thing. Nobody knows the time of the hour day like that. That's that celebration, which leads us into the 10 days of awe leading up to Yom Kippur. And then on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, which is the 10th day of the seventh month. And that's where we celebrate the other part of what Mashiach did for us with his sacrificial blood as he atoned for all of our sins. So he delivered us and redeemed us from slavery, sin and bondage as a Pesach. But at the same time, he also made atonement for all of our sins and transgressions before Shem through his blood. OK, literally wiping it away. So. What we're doing when we're making teshuva is reclaiming and attaching ourselves to that blood that was spilled on the stake by Messiah Yeshua. So then you got right after Yom Kippur, you go right in a Sukkot and then Sukkot, you got Hoshana Rabbah, which is the day that the woman suspected of adultery or caught in adultery was thrown down into temple courtyard in the middle of Mashiach Yeshua's shore. Like his class, he was teaching and these these crazy, I don't know what's wrong with these kind of people just came in and throwing this woman down in front of him while he's teaching. And it's just kind of like, OK, class is missed, I guess. 
Uh, well, I guess we got a court case that's going to happen very, very inappropriately. So I'm going to deal with this. That's cool. Uh, I deal with this all the time because people are always trying to catch me up and stuff uh, because they want to look for fault and they ain't going to be able to find it. Just like if you're reading the tour scroll and you're truly uh, going through a kosher tour scroll that has been written appropriately and everything and you're trying to find a mistake in the word of God. Like that's what it was like for Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and religious teachers to come after Messiah Yeshua and question him and put him in these awkward positions. So that's Hoshana Rabbah. Uh, and then also this is when Messiah Yeshua also stood up in the temple courtyard on another occasion, like Yochanan chapter seven. And he said, if any man is thirsty, then let him come to me and I will give him a drink. And from your bellies will flow rivers of living water. That's also attached to that. And then the eighth day of Sukkot, which note, by the way, in Vayikra 23, verse 33, it says the festival of Sukkot, a seven day period for Hashem. Check this out on the verse 35. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, i.e. take a Shabbat. Don't work that day. Verse 36. For a seven day period, you shall offer fire offerings to Adonai. On the eighth day, there shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall offer a fire offering to Adonai. It is an assembly. You shall not do any laborious work, i.e. don't work on the eighth day. But the previous verse just said it's a seven day festival. And now it's like it's an eight day festival. And it's just like, yeah, just like Pesach, except Shabbat is celebrated 50 days later as opposed to right there. And uh, so, yeah, so Pesach is technically an eight day festival, which is why you, you can look at from Pesach to just about a few days to like a week and a few days over uh, was when Mashiach Yeshua ascended. Just a, just about a week before Shavuot actually kicked off, he ascended, which means that when he said, I'm going to send you the comforter because I got to go to the father. And if he doesn't, if I don't go, he won't come like so I can make sure your Shavuot's going to be legit. I got to go. I've been with you as long as I possibly can. So you're going to have 10 days from this point to prepare yourselves, just like you have 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to prepare yourselves. OK. Here we go. Let's get it. All right. And he goes up and then just like he said, the spirit comes down tongues of fire. And remember, tongues of fire also came down at Mount Sinai and they were dancing around the camp. And what was happening then? That's when the Torah was given. All right. So anyway, if you want to know what Hashem loves to celebrate, look at that end of long swerve. Back to Vieira versus Vieira. Okay, so we talked about Vieira this week's tour portion. It says, and I appeared. And then Parsha Vieira says, Hashem appeared. Okay, so again, it's removing yourself from a first person and it's just giving an account. So that is the difference between Vieira, this week's tour portion, and Vieira, tour portion from Bereshit. Hopefully that helps and clears up a few things. And since I'd said tongues of fire, I just want to drop down something from Midrash Rabbah that was uh, absolutely insane uh, to come across. And uh, let me cue it up here. So I took quite a few pictures. Shouts out to Stav Soldat for letting me borrow the Midrash Rabbah because I was like, 
all about like everything that it had to say. And since I knew it wasn't mine and I was going to have to give it back, uh, I took pictures. So anyway, going through my photo gallery. Boom, 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 boom. So this is Moshe at the burning bush. And where are we at? All right. So Midrash Rabbah Shemot 2.5. And it says, it's commenting on, he saw and behold, the thorn bush was burning in the fire. Okay, the Midrash presumes that the fire did not consume the bush because it was a heavenly fire. That's important to know that our God is a consuming fire and who can dwell with a consuming fire? None other than one who walks in righteousness. All right, I got to source that out. I know, I know. Man, okay, Yeshayahu here. Stand by. <clears throat> because this heavenly fire is what we're consumed with when we are observant in the Torah. And it's incredible for us to really grab a hold of that because this is the fire that shows itself, like you can see it, but then it's also um, a fire that doesn't really like burn in the same way that fire burns like in this world. So um, where are we at here? Because uh, this is basically and Yeshayahu and people are freaking out because of all the fires and they're like, man, this is this is scary. This is crazy. Like, who can do this? Uh, let's see. All right, I'm going to call in for backup here. We're in. OK, I was a long way off. Yeshayahu 3314. I will race you there. Alright, sinners were afraid in Zion. Who was? Sinners. Afraid in Zion. Trembling. Seized. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. You mean like some of the Pharisees, all of the Sadducees. And some of the religious teachers of the time of Messiah Yeshua who were questioning him, who he said, Yeshayahu prophesied right about you, that your lips you give to Hashem, but your heart is far from him. You know, like those kind of people. Those are hypocrites. And then the sinners, people who just outright go, yeah, I know Hashem said, but this is what I'm going to do. Okay, so sinners, those people are afraid. Trembling are the people who have lip service, but no heart service. That says, which of us can live with the consuming fire? Just for grins, footnote. It says, sinners were afraid in Zion. Jewish sinners were afraid when they saw God's might unleashed against Assyria. That's Ibn Ezra. How could they ever repent sufficiently? That's from Rashi. How could we ever repent sufficiently? None other than being in Messiah Yeshua, being new creations in Messiah Yeshua. Because when you are that, you literally walk in, how can we ever repent sufficiently? Because even though I make Shuva, it's not enough. And after I make Shuva again, it's still not enough. 
I got to constantly walk into Shuva, which is still not enough. But if I'm constantly walking into Shuva, I'm getting closer and closer and closer to Hashem. And it's just like, that's the picture. That's how it's supposed to be. You can't ever arrive because even in the Olam Haba, we're still going to be learning Torah. We're still going to be growing spiritually with Hashem. And I mean, it's just kind of like we're kudzu. Okay. You just plan a little bit and we just grow like crazy and you can't get rid of it. That's the that's what our teshuva needs to be. Our teshuva needs to be kudzu. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, look up kudzu. Don't go out and buy kudzu, especially if you live in an apartment. Do not plant kudzu. The, your apartment complex will just do some horrible things that you will just not like. OK, uh, as well as the kudzu. So it'll be like a double negative. But anyway, look up kudzu. Google is a wonderful thing. So after uh, you look at that, the other comment here says, alternatively, when they saw the awesome power of the Assyrian army, Jewish sinners who lacked faith, who lacked Amuna, who were not doing the works that Hashem called us to do, basically, they were overawed. How could they defend themselves against an invincible enemy? And that is from the Radak. And this is the beautiful thing about our Torah observance. If we're Torah observant and returning to the path of righteousness constantly, we're made invincible towards our enemies. And furthermore, our enemies are transformed into partakers of the meal at the table of the king. This is why we pray for our enemies. This is why we love our enemies, because we when we do that, we give them an opportunity to make the same teshuva that we're making. And when they do that, they become new creations and they no longer become our enemies. And this is the picture of beating our swords and the plowshares is that we're not a people that's all about war, you know, which is kind of cool because you look at uh, history, because if you look at the news, that doesn't help. But you look at history and it's like nation after nation after nation, just battles and wars and starting fights for what? And it's like, but if you look at what Hashem truly called Israel to, to be the light of the world, truly caused us to be a light to the nations, to learn the ways of peace and teach the ways of peace. We're like the least prone to like instigate wars like you wouldn't believe that we will handle business if we have to, which is what we were supposed to do when we got in the land, because the people who were in the land that Hashem said, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this is yours. I give it to you. First of all, Abraham paid for like all the down payment on it. And Hashem said, I'm giving it to you completed in Yaakov. OK. And then when we got back from Egypt, there were people in the land like this land don't belong to you. We're Canaanites and we got things that we're doing here so y'all can just leave. And you got Sikon and Og, the two giants. You got uh, King Balak, who was like freaking out, you know, and you got like all these other things going on. We we're supposed to fight that one time so that we could truly take it by force, take our faith and our Imuna and Hashem by force and bring in the Messianic era. But did we do that? No. And are we doing that right now? No. But we need to be. Because that is the only war that we're literally supposed to fight. The war against Amalek. We're supposed to fight that. 
and realize that these these people that I'm talking about who are the people that we're supposed to war against, these are the very entities who are about snuffing out Torah, who are about taking away the Jewish nation, Hashem's chosen people from the earth. You realize, have these nations been successful? Had these nations been successful? Had these nations been successful in doing what they really want to do? There would never, ever be a Messiah Yeshua born to save the world because there'd be no Jews. And so it's by the grace of Hashem that even though we haven't completely taken the land like we were supposed to originally and get rid of Amalek like we were supposed to originally, it's amazing that Hashem still was like, I'm merciful enough to still give you the Messiah. So anyway, um, back over here to this. It says that uh, which of us can live with the consuming fire? Which sinners can survive in Zion while defying God, who is a consuming fire? To which God answers. And it's in the text. It literally is verse 15, the next verse. But uh, Rashi's already on it. He says, to which God answers? One who walks with righteousness. Now, remember, righteousness is a person. Uh, Yermiyahu 23.6 Mashiach, or is Hashem Zidkenu, is uh, is the title of Messiah, by the way. Messiah, our righteousness, is also Hashem, our righteousness. Which is kind of like, so if Hashem Zidkenu, there's Mashiach Zidkenu, then is it Hashem or is it Mashiach? And it's like, yes. So walking with righteousness, it's not only us walking in Torah observance, but it's also us walking with Mashiach Yeshua, which is to which is Torah observance. That caught me off guard. I'm like, really, just I love that. I want to throw this book out the window, but I said we don't do that to the Word of God. So I'm just gonna put a fancy little tab here to uh, join the tab system, like our wonderful sister in the faith. Her name is Scarlet Prophetess, A.K.A. Naomi. Uh, okay, so. Yeah, so I'm going to tab that because that's, I love it. Anyway, one more. According to Radak, above, this question was asked by those who feared the consuming fire of the Assyrians. Okay, because it says Hashem is a consuming fire, but now the consuming fire is called Assyrians. Well, Hashem did say, I need you to keep my Torah or else you'll be expelled from the land. Like, you ever heard of the Shema? And didn't he say that, you, if you bow down to foreign gods and uh, prostrate before them, that you'll be removed from the goodly land that Hashem has given to us. He did say that. So part of the consuming fire that removes us from the land is the enemies that he sends in to remove us from the land. So that's crazy. But anyway, Radak continues. The answer was that Hezekiah, the one who walks with righteousness, Needed not fear. So it literally just said, Hezekiah, Hezekiah, is the only one who was walking in righteousness and he did not need to fear the consuming fire. So what's up with that? Because I mean, literally, I just went on a whole thing about if we're walking in Torah observance, we're invincible, you know, to our enemies. And uh, when the consuming fire comes in, when the enemy comes in like a flood, because we're walking in righteousness, which is a standard, by the way, that's what gets lifted up. 
So when the enemy comes in like a flood, Hashem will lift up a standard or a banner or a victory. Okay. But again, remember, we don't celebrate until Mashiach returns and the temple's rebuilt. That's where we celebrate. And we celebrate by saying, Baruch Shem Kavod Makuto Leolam Vayed, with our face in the dirt. And the temple courtyard dirt is probably the most holiest dirt in the world. You can eat it, I guess, if you need to, if you feel compelled to. But our faces will be in it because we're going to be walking around barefooted because we will truly be on holy ground. Come on. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so back to the Midrash Rabbah here. So the heavenly fire is the one that did not consume the bush, but it was on fire. And then it says it cites a teaching that is based on this understanding. From here, the sages taught the fire from above, i.e. the heavenly fire projects shoots of fire. Footnote says this is inferred from our verse for the word Be'levat which is from the heart of the bush, is a cognate of lulav, which is a shoot, referring to shoots of fire. It just literally said that this bush is a bunch of lulavs, and that is the consuming fire that was consuming this bush. And this bush is a thorn bush, which is a hasine. And the previous footnote says that just as the bush was not consumed by fire, Moshe will live out all of his days because Hasine, which is hey, which equals five, Samic, which equals 60, noon, which equals 50, hey, which equals five, totaling 120, which is the number of years of the life of Moshe. So it says he's going to live out all his days despite his myriad of communal responsibilities, i.e. there's going to be a lot of stress, which should kill you. And then God told this to Moshe that he would not so that he would not be afraid to accept the mantle of leadership. So you think about everything that should shorten the lifespan of Moshe. Hashem said you're not going to be touched by it because you're going to be consumed in this heavenly fire. And again, I was saying how we're going to be invincible walking in Torah. Things that should be taking us out, they don't because we walk in Torah. And that's nothing to brag or boast about because that's only Hashem's grace and mercy. Because we will die at some point. Bezrat Hashem, we don't have to experience that because when Messiah returns, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So may that be the case. King Yehidat Son, Amen be Amen. But if not, but if not, we need to be aware that one day we will die, regardless of our Torah observance or not. It's better to die in Torah, like die unto Hashem, <laughs> as opposed to not. Uh, G. Shekel was really crazy, and he brought down something about um, the wicked who uh, excel and exceed in this world. You know, they're definitely like against Hashem, and they're not following Torah or anything, and they're seeming to have all of this success. They're having like all of these gifts and all of this bounty and you know they're like they got the big houses they got the cars they got the girls and it's like you should only have one girl but that's whatever they're having children they're very prolific and they're very famous and renowned you know maybe that doesn't fit all the evil people but there's the gamut of that because i realize there are people who are righteous who have that same thing uh but on the righteous side obviously without all the uh impurity but anyway but the wicked 
seemingly uh, are victorious and excel in this world. And it's just like, that's only because they have this world. So he was dropping down in the source that they're met with a band of executioners upon their death. Like when they die and go into the, the afterlife, they're they're like, okay, here's your judgments. And it's like they got three judgments a day or something like that that they're going through that's like punishments. And it's just like, oh, you mean like how we do Ma'ariv, Shakarit, Minka, like our three judgments of a day? But... It's just like, yeah, they're going to have a very different prayer service, though. And it's just like, ooh, well, never mind. So anyway, uh, we do want to walk in Torah observance, and we don't want this world. We want the world to come. Understand that, and may we all do it and walk in it. So anyway, uh, and the lulav, you know, what? So when we're shaking our lulavs, we're shoots of fire from the burning fire, the burning heavenly fire, the above fire. And there's a whole nother drop in the same Midrash Rabbah section about the fire. It burned the upper two thirds of the bush, which was like the fire that was on the man, the image or the likeness of a man, I should say, which we know that is Memtet or the primordial Adam, Adam Elyon, as it's called in Kabbalah, which what are we really saying right there? Uh, he was the one that was on the throne in chapter one of Yehezkel. And there was an upper fire on him and a lower fire. And so remember, Yeshua says, I am the true vine and you're the branches in Yochanan chapter 15. And we are shoots of that vine. We're those branches and we're lulavim, which are shoots of fire. And then uh, somehow I was reading in the Midrash Rabbah and Bereshit, like back all the way to that Torah portion, uh, that the clothes that Hashem made for Adam and Hava was lapid. It was fiery clothing. And it's just like, say what? Let me pull that up. You got to hear this. You got to hear this. It's ridiculous. Uh, flipping through my gallery. Why do I take so much pictures? Because I love to. Okay. Bereshit Rabbah 2012. It says, And Adonai made for the human and his woman. <laughs> wow. And Adonai, God, made for the human and for his woman it literally says it that way for his woman clothing of skin and dress them that's bereshit chapter 3 verse 21 in the torah of rabbi mir we find written clothing of light these garments of the primordial human resembled a torch narrow at the top and wide at the bottom i.e. a lapid, y'all. The garments resembled a lapid. The human lapid. So when you think about the human torch from Fantastic Four, when he goes, flame on! That's him putting on the garments that Hashem gave us in chapter 3 of Bereshit. That's a picture of what our garments used to look like. And it says, uh, narrow at the top and then and wide at the bottom. Rabbi Yitzhak the Greater says, this clothing was like fingernails, effulgent like a pearl. Rabbi Yitzhak says, like garments of the finest linen, like the kind that comes from Beit Sha'an, garments of skin because they clung to the skin. Okay, so you know that nanotech suit that Iron Man just busted out in, you know, because a <laughs> little biased here, love Iron Man because, you know, Shomer Man, you know, anyway. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, that that's what the, you know, the nanotech it was just like straight up on his skin like this is my suit 
and it's just like it's armor and it's like legit and it's like yeah that's the clothes and then ish la mr shlomo ben hillel is gonna bust up in on shabbat talking about yeah also was reading something in the sources about like those same garments you could literally fold up and crush into the palm of your hand and then open the palm of your hand they would go back to normal size and then you can unfold them and wear them this is like come on ant-man technology now like this is what we do we just shrink our suit and and then unshrink it and put it back on like seriously and then we got the whole palm of your hand drop like seriously come on now because we're supposed to be in the palm of the hand of Mashiach. So being in the garments, you know, we're in the palm of his hand and we can't be plucked from his hand. And as Incredible Talmud, Mr. Mikael says, but we can walk out, though. So if we are considering ourselves part of Mashiach Yeshua's chosen and we walk away from him, by default, we weren't Mashiach's chosen because we chose not to be chosen. Choose this day who you're going to serve kind of thing. Hashem wants us. He wants us to be chosen. He has chosen to choose us. But do we choose him back? Because the people that Hashem is, uh, well, let's go with Mashiach for this example. Mashiach, the, pe the people that Mashiach chose to be his Talmudim, he chose them because they would choose him back. But notice that there was one who specifically was chosen and he knew that they were not going to be chosen. And he still chose them anyway to give them an opportunity. To show us, it's a beautiful picture for us that we're supposed to be choosing Hashem, but He's not going to choose us in a way that overrides our choosing of Him back. And so if we're not walking with Hashem, and if we're not choosing Him as He has chosen us, because you realize the moment you hear anything of Torah, the moment you get the opportunity for Teshuvah, like that's Hashem saying, I'm choosing you. Are you going you gonna to walk with me? You're going to come and follow me. And it's up to us from that point. So anyway, there's all that. And so the lulav is just a picture of that shoot, that branch. And we shake that during Sukkot. And this was also what was waved at Messiah Yeshua as he came into Yerushalayim riding on a donkey. So, yeah. And then, um, man, like, where do you even want to go after that? Like, I don't even know. But I will finish that drop, though. It says... Because check it out, it says the shoots of fire burns, but does not consume. And this is black. So the black fire of the Torah, it burns, but it doesn't consume. It's heavenly fire. So the black fire of the Torah, which are the words on the page, that is heavenly fire. This is why it says Hashem gave to us his fiery Torah, divine 33.2. Another one of my favorite verses. Then it says, whereas the fire from below, i.e. the earthly fire, does not project shoots of fire, and it is red. It consumes and does not burn unless it takes hold of a physical object that fuels it. Let's look at the footnote on that. Therefore, that object is consumed by the fire. So I don't know why, because obviously there's no Jewish source on it. But I think about the red letter Bibles and it's like that's kind of like considered an earthly fire, even though it's Mashiach Yeshua speaking, which should be heavenly fire. So those actually should be black words. But let's just go with that. It's red and it's like, OK, so it's not going to consume anything. 
Okay, so it says, and therefore that object is consumed by the fire. So it has to have a fueling mechanism. So it says that unless it takes hold of a physical object that fuels it. So if you think about taking the red fire and putting it into our physicality, which is like our doing, our actual interaction with the world, like literally being hands and feet, then it says that it's not going to burn unless we have something to fuel it, which is when it takes hold of a physical object. So when we literally put physicality to the words of Messiah Yeshua by being obedient to him, by him saying, if you love me, keep my commandments. So now that if we do the commandments, we take the red fire and it literally becomes the manifestation of Obadiah when it says the house of Yaakov is a fire, but Yosef is a flame because the flame goes out from the fire and it scorches from a long distance. And so that's literally what we're doing now when we literally follow the, the red letter words of Messiah Yeshua. And I realize that could be MSU at its highest, but I do want to bring that to the table because, I mean, it's a red letter Bible. Like, is it a coincidence that it's a red letter Bible? Maybe it is because, you know, Asav, his, his favorite color is red. <laughs> like literally Edom is the way you say red, which is also Edom, like red, like the city or the habitation of Asav. So it's like, well, it could be Asav, but remember Mashiach is clothed in Asav, so he's covered in red because he puts physicality to the red fire. You know, he literally did what the Torah wrote about, you know, and spoke about. So, you know, and he was a physical object, so he burned kind of thing. And it's just kind of like, all right. So, I mean, that's a whole lot of just craziness, but I wanted to bring that up because that was probably one of my all-time favorite finds from the previous Shabbat. Now let's go back to Parsha Vayigash, more specifically Haftarah Vayigash, and look at the two sticks that become one. Yes, I'm talking Yehezekiel 37, which if you go back to the Haftarah of Vayigash and listen to Hasis share what his Kala, uh, the prophetess, the Scarlet Prophetess brought down, she found a Torah code for Yeshua in there. So just go there and check it out. I ain't gonna repeat it because it's too much and it's too amazing. Uh, and I don't wanna mess it up. Anyway, so if we pick up in verse 15, it says, the word of Hashem came to me saying, now you, son of man, take for yourself one piece of wood and write upon it for Yehuda, and for the children of Israel, his comrades. So Yehuda and B'nai Yisrael. Got that? So that's one. Okay. And then take one piece of wood and write on it for Yosef, the wood of Ephraim and all the house of Yisrael, his comrades. So now you got the children of Yisrael with Yehuda and then the house of Yisrael with Ephraim. Because Okay, so then you can go into Haftarah Vayaki and you can learn all about uh, Ephraim and, and all that. So uh, Vayigash and Vayiki and uh, I mean, just go through all. The, no, not Vayiki, Slika. It, it should be actually, it should be same Haftarah. Haftarah. Um, after Vayigash, we'll talk about Ephraim as well. So, yeah, it's all in one place. One place. Rukashim, you can go find it all there. 
so much amazing insights that it's kind of hard to keep up with them you know it's just kind of like um i'm in this part of the pool today and i was in that part of the pool yesterday and the whole pool is amazing uh i only got to go to six flags hurricane harbor one time and the experience i had in the big wave pool was like incredible it's like this one big pool and it goes from shallow to super deep and there are timed waves that go across and it's like literally no matter what part of the pool you're in you feel this wave and like you can like jump up and it'll like push you and pull you back like 15 feet and it's just like it's amazing so i don't know i just when i think about being a tour study that's kind of what i feel like you know it's just kind of like wow i'm in the wave pool this is awesome Hashem, just throwing me around you know and then i want to throw stuff around but anyway I'm sharing way too much personal information. I should just stick it to the verse. All right, Brukshem, Yistabak Shemo. Now, so Yosef, the reason I want to stop it on the Yosef part because you realize that the children of Yosef, Ephraim and Menashe, like that's where the Kahal comes in, which is, again, I said this last week, this is the word that is supposed to uh, be word church. Like the people who come in and believe in Messiah Yeshua and get converted and like start following Torah and stuff. But does church do that? Well, I wish they would. But anyway, they're doing some of it. They're immersing people in the names of Hashem. So there is that. So they have begun the conversion process. That's that's really amazing. Uh, so and then uh, lots of people are getting circumcised. So that's cool. Um, but anyway, for what that's worth, though. The Kahal comes in through Ephraim in the house of Israel, and these are the tribes that are scattered among the nations. And obviously Yehuda and his comrades, which would have been Yehuda and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, south side, uh, they also got scattered too, because like there are really no tribes left in the land. But anyway, we're getting back though, we're coming back, bringing us in. Mashiach Yeshua is bringing us back. But, um, Specifically, though, because we're sent out to the nations to make proselytes so that the exile is so that we can go out and make proselytes. That's codified a lots of different places, uh, namely mostly in the Talmud. So if you look at Ephraim, who's really the, the first one to be disbanded, the north side was disbanded first and then the south side eventually uh, with Babylon. And that's why the first exile is considered to be Babylon, because that's finally when the south side was taken. So it's just kind of like when the north side was taken by Assyria, it was just kind of like, okay, we're kind of in exile, but not really. And then it's like, boom, now we're in exile. Babylon just took out the south side. They just destroyed the temple. So I don't know. We're just having a Selah moment on that because really the separation of the kingdom, uh, which happened literally during the lifetime of Shlomo and especially after his death really being actualized, you really see that. You know, it's it's Yehuda, it's Ben David, that's the reigning king, and there is value to Ben Yosef, but he is literally from the Kol Hatur. Yosef is the throne for David, so you gotta have the king's throne, right? Because if you got if you got a king that's not sitting on a throne, then you know he's not he's not really ruling or reigning over anything. So that's why Yosef is important. So when the northern kingdom was taken out, it was basically like the king was dethroned, but the king was still there. But then when the south side was taken out, we lost the king, too. So the king and his throne were cast out of the land. And it's just kind of like, ooh, 
that's not good and then we find ourselves in the days of Purim with Mordechai and Esther which is what we're studying in the Megillah right now heading towards Purim which is coming speedily and soon in our days I mean so um but anyway that's just a selah that I had to take so thank you for joining me in that you probably didn't want to but we did and now it says in verse 17 then bring them close to yourself one to the other like one piece of wood and they will become united in your hand okay so Yehazikel is getting to see a picture of the final redemption where Yehuda and Yosef become one on that day his name will be one you know kind of like the Elenu and it says Verse 18, now when the children of your people say to you, saying, will you not tell us what these things are to you? Say to them. Okay, for back up real quick. I forgot to mention, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but Yehezekiel is my favorite prophet because this guy is the epitome of Naseve Nishma in my book, just like Abraham was, and just like Yitzhak, and just like uh, Yaakov, you know, all the patriarchs, because again, Parsha Vayera, like this week's Torah portion, Vayera and Shemot, where uh, Hashem is saying, I did not appear, like, I did not, well, I did not, I was not known to the patriarchs by my name, you know, what does he use, the, the tetragrammaton, but I was just known as Shaddai, like, they knew about the Yod and Hay with the Vav and Hay, but it didn't matter. I didn't have to really go there with them and really elucidate that like I'm doing now. I'm about to do now as we go through the plagues and we come out into the wilderness, into the mountain. Like, I didn't have to do all that. The patriarchs did that. So they didn't need to go to Sinai. They 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 were beyond Sinai. They were at Sinai already, basically. Um, but anyway, so Yehezekiel was always like doing the most weirdest things. If you're an outside looking type person, it's like he was laying on his side, eating weird food, like the opposite of the paleo diet for like a year. And then he had to switch sides and then do another stint of time just laying on his sides. And then he was like a mute because he was only allowed to speak when it was time for him to prophesy because uh, something happened. And then because um, he like ate a scroll and stuff like that. And then, um, not to mention the first chapter when Hashem is appearing and the four living creatures are surrounding the throne, like a revelation type thing going on. And then he sees Memtet and all that kind of stuff. And Hashem is speaking to him. And he's walking with a bunch of exiles at that point. He just turned 30, just like Messiah Yeshua began his ministry when he turned 30. So, I mean, it was just like all that. But what really got me was when his wife died and Hashem said, you're not allowed to mourn for her in public. So pretend like nothing ever happened. And this is a picture for the children of Israel. And so not only that, uh, the other thing that, that happened was he would build like these clay um, enactments in his yard, like these little set pieces of like the war and the siege that would happen to the city. Uh, like the every everything that happens when someone attacks the city of Jerusalem, you know, and he had to build all those things out there. They're called siege works, and he had to build it and just do all the enactments and like set all the destruction up and watch it all collapse. And people would be like walking around like, 
This mute guy over here, what's he doing? Crazy guy. So, I mean, it's just like, it's, he was just like such such a really just like, man, thank you, Hashem, for allowing me to know Yezkel. Like, literally, when I get to Alam Haba, he is definitely a guy I want to talk to. So, uh, Yezkel, I'm looking forward to interacting with you, Hashem. So, anyway, uh, why did I bring all that up? Because here we see that Yehezekiel just acted out the two sticks coming together. And now it's saying, now when the people come to you and say, what are these things to you? What are you doing? What are you doing now, Yehezekiel? Like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, okay, now you can explain it, okay? Because now I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let you talk now. I'm gonna turn you, uh, I'm gonna turn the volume up now because you will no longer be on mute, okay? So when that happens, it says, thus says, Adonai Elohim, mm, the balanced mercy of Hashem, because Adonai represents Chesed, Elohim represents justice and judgment. Putting them together, it says, Behold, I am taking the wood of Yosef, which is the hand, which is in the hand of Ephraim, the staff of that king there, and the tribes of Israel, so the northern kingdom. Okay, and I'm going to place them and him together with the wood, the staff of Yosef, and will make them into one piece of wood. I'm going to reunite the two kingdoms and they will become one in my hand. The pieces of wood upon which you will write shall be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, thus says Adonai Elohim. Behold, I am taking the children of Israel from among the nations to which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their soil. I will make them into one nation in the land under God, indivisible. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, read the text. Up on the mountains of Israel, they're going to be one nation in the land, up on the mountains of Israel, one king will be king for them all, and they will no longer be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms ever again. And Parsha Vayigash was when Yosef and Yehuda became one because they both were at that same level of Teshuvah, and then that's when Yosef revealed himself and the family was reunited and all that. Okay, so then it says they will no longer be contaminated with their idols and with their abhorrent things and with all their sins, I will save them, taking them from all their dwelling places in which they had sinned. Okay, taking them from all their dwelling places in which they had sinned, and I will purify them. They will be a nation to me. I will be a, a God to them. My servant David will be servant over them. All right, and it says, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances, keep my decrees, and fulfill them. Okay, so just in case we need to know, Hashem is like, Torah is like something we should be doing. He just brought that up. So, yeah, we need to know that the kingdom that was split and exiled apart from one another, it's like Hashem says, I'm bringing them back together in the land of Israel. Okay, so that's going to happen. We don't need to doubt that, okay? It's real. So why did I want to bring this up? Well, because it's important for us to know, uh, especially as some of us are converts, 
and feeling like I didn't grow up in a Jewish household. Uh, and I, how can I call myself Jewish? And it's just like, that's part of the plan. Part of the plan is to send out the tribes to go get people because I exiled the tribes among the nations and I'm going to bring them back. And they should have been like Velcro for uh, other people to be like lint to get attached to them so that when I bring them back, they got they're towing people. There are uh, apparently two or three men attached to the ZZ of a Jew. Like something along those lines are happening. Like we should be brought back with the children of Israel. So, and as we are uh, converted, we're called and counted as the children of Israel. So remember those shoots of fire and they can burn up things when they take hold of a physical object, i.e. a person who is supposed to be uh, consumed by Hashem. And so then they get changed. They're born again. They're mikvah with water and fire. The water is the teshuva. The fire is the Torah. So then they're coming in. They're like branches now, you know, grafted in, that whole kind of thing. So however you're getting in, whether you're grabbing onto a Jew, and whether you're going to convert and become a Jew, or if you're just going to be like, yeah, I just want to be attached to the king. I want to be at the foot of his throne. Like, you're, you're getting brought in. You're like, Hashem is gathering it all in, putting the two sticks together. And so that's, that's important because um, you don't ever want to get caught up in this idea of, oh, whoa, don't do that Jewish stuff. It's like, no, I want to do that Jewish stuff because I'm done with this exile. I want to, I want to go to when the Geula happens. And I want to be under the one shepherd, the one king, Messiah Yeshua. Okay. I don't want no other king. And I don't want when I die to be uh, surrounded by people who are going to execute me and, and uh, basically mete out my, my judgment that I've accrued upon myself throughout living in this world and being so far from Hashem and just telling him whatever. And for three times a day in the Alam Haba, I'm going to be tortured and stuff like I don't want that. And so uh, when people say, well, I grew up in a Jewish household and da, 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 da. And it's like, well, Asaph grew up in a Jewish household and he went da, 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 da. And like, where is he now? You know, he definitely did not follow Torah. And he lost the birthright. He's not buried in the cave of Machpelah. You know, he did not inherit with the children of Israel. But Obadiah did. But how did Obadiah do it? He converted. But Haman didn't. Amalek didn't. You know, they died. Okay, so we need to know that. And, uh, you know, Moshe did not grow up in a Jewish household. And what happened to him? He led the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the mountain of God. Rabbi Trugman, in a realization moment in one of his drashes, he's just like, oh, Moshe was a Baal Shuvah. Oh, my word. And he said that as calm as he could. He's like, you know, and I was thinking to myself, I realized Moshe was a Baal Shuvah. He didn't grow up in a Jewish home. He was far from Hashem, and he returned to Hashem. He took upon himself the covenant. And I'm like, man, you're just so amazing to me because like you're so excited, but you're so calm. I got to learn how to do that. Anyway, so footnote on this. I'm in the Arch Scroll, by the way, Arch Scroll series on um, Yehezekiel, the Milstein edition, because there is another Arch Scroll series on the prophets. And um, that is a legit series. It's like little thin books, but they're like 
punch you in the mouth type things. But anyway, the Milstein edition over here says, Behold, I am taking the wood of Yosef, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his comrades, and I am placing them and him together with the wood of Yehuda, and I will make them into one piece of wood. It says, The translation follows Radak and Mezudot, according to whom all the tribes of Israel will become unified into one kingdom. No longer will they be split into a kingdom of Judah and a kingdom of Ephraim. Alternatively, uh, should be rendered, I am placing on them the wood of Yehuda, i.e. all 12 tribes will be part of a single kingdom ruled by a descendant of Judah, i.e. one from the house of David. Who is that? Oh my goodness, I'm glad you asked. It's Mashiach Yeshua. And that is correct for 314. Thank you. Why did I say that? That's the Gematria of Shaddai, which is also the Gematria of Memtet. Yep. Okay. So anyway, never to be separated again. That's from the Targum and the Maharikara. And it says, a Barbanel and Malbim have a unique approach to this unified kingdom based on the tradition of Chazal, the sages, that will or that there will be two messiahs. What? You're going to have to make me pull out my brother, Aki Rocky over here, Mr. Rachmio Friedland, or Friedman, um, the What the Rabbis Know About Messiah, that, that book that I'm always carrying around that the Incredible Talmud gifted with me like probably almost five or six years ago now. Love that book. But it talks about there are two messiahs, and so does the Messiah text and everything else we've been reading here at Lapid. Why do we say there are two messiahs? Because we obviously know there's one. Well, yeah. Well, if you really look at the picture here, the wood really is one, but it's just two pieces. It's two stages or two phases. Or there's one thing going to happen and there's going to be a separation. Then another thing is going to happen and there's going to be bringing it together. I.e. Messiah returning. Okay, bringing the stick together. Anyway. First, there will be a Messiah descended from Yosef who will rule in the rebuilt Yerushalayim. <laughs> That's awesome because, you know, Yerushalayim was rebuilt after Babylon so that they could go through making the second temple so that when Yeshua was here on the earth, he could literally walk around in the temple like as the Shekinah because there was no Shekinah in the second temple, but Yeshua was there. Sleekah. So it says he will rule in the rebuilt Yerushalayim, lead the unified people in battles against evading enemies, invading enemies. Ultimately, this Messiah will die in battle, okay, because he was killed by the Romans. The Romans were invading at the time of Messiah Yeshua's walking here on earth. That's right before the beginning of Rome truly taking over, which is why you see Nero and Caesar and Herods and all those Augustines and uh, also or Charles or something. Some one of kings was like Charles or something in uh, Acts that uh, or Felix. That's what it is. Wow, Charles. That we're really gonna go with. Anyway, Felix uh, was one of the people that uh, Shaul actually interacted with in Acts, and these were all different branches of Rome that were really taking over and beheading people and all sorts of stuff. And that's the battle that Mashiach Yeshua died in. So when we look at Mashiach Yeshua, Mashiach ben Yosef is going to die in battle. It's part of that. 
But remember, he resurrected and he ascended. So what kind of death was that really? Then it says, beginning a chain of events culminating in the rule of the Messiah descended from David, which will be the final eternal redemption. And this is why it's important to know that Mashiach Yeshua resurrected to bring that aspect of Mashiach David into existence. As far as like his main mission now is Mashiach David. His main mission before his death was Mashiach Ben Yosef. That's why he was like, it's not my time yet. It's not my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to die. Da, 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 da. Like, but I'm not here to like rule and reign yet. So, you know, son of man is going to be handed over. And everybody's like, come on, man. Like we need to proclaim the kingdom. And he's like, my kingdom's not of this world and it's not time to bring it on this world yet, you know, kind of thing. And so like we have to understand that. So when Messiah Yeshua is resurrected, it's like now it's time to really bring in the chain of events culminating in the rule of Messiah Ben David, which will be the final eternal redemption. So, yeah. So anyway, Mashiach is like, not yet. We're not going to bring the stick together yet. We're not going to bring it together just yet, because when the stick comes together, it's going to be, woo, everybody watch out. But anyway, it says, a Barbanel and Malbim understand this verse and the following ones to refer to the two messiahs. In other words, in the first stage of redemption, all the tribes will be merged into a single entity led by Messiah from Ephraim, son of Joseph. There you go. So, all tribes are going to be merged into a single entity in the first stage of the redemption. And that's why Mashiach Yeshua chose 12 Talmudim to represent those 12 tribes to go out and pro, uh, be progenitors, basically, of the 12 tribes, you know, or regenerate the 12 tribes. So there was a idea that we had here at Lapid, some of us anyway, we're thinking about, man, we need to line up the Talmudim with the 12 sons of Yaakov. And look at that and see how, you know, the 12 sons begot the 12 tribes, you know, for Yaakov. And the same thing is supposed to happen with the 12 Talmudim of Mashiach. Because you realize if you're a Talmud of a Rebbe, that Rebbe is your father and you become his son. So shouts out to my Abba, uh, Rabbi Griffin, a.k.a. Captain Yisrael. Uh, so anyway, uh, it's just amazing. We're a single entity. So how much more so now us being children of those who went out from those from the Talmudim like at some point the way that we came to this faith you know whether it be fragmented uh, because it was as far as coming from a, a Roman background somehow the teachings of the 12 Talmudim went out and, and and it went out to their Talmudim, to their Talmudim, so on and so forth, till it got to us, you know, like specifically any of us who have taken hold of the covenant. And now we're a part of the covenant and we're walking in the covenant. And, um, you know, we're part of the 12 tribes, like regenerated 12 tribes. Like, I think that's just absolutely amazing. Like under Mashiach Ben Yosef, the tribes are merged into a single entity. And so, yeah, that's that. All right. So a couple of shots from the Parsha before we index our time. Uh, Captain Yisrael is just doing an amazing job on the Aliyah day. But I just wanted to just kind of come in and uh, 
for lack of a better terms, just kind of do some flybys over all the crazy things that he is blowing up and just really elucidating amazingly. Um, so anyway, that's, one, that's my goal with these uh, drop zones is to just kind of come in and drop some things. Um, let's see here. So I got a show enough pinkish drop that I would like to throw out here because it has the the midrash that uh, Rabbi Griffin alluded to last week about the children of Israel who were uh, taken out into the fields uh, because the the parents of the children were like there's a decree going out by Pharaoh that he needs to uh, wipe out all the the kids and we don't want our children to die. So, you know, we just took our children out to the field and, you know, Hashem took care of them. So uh, let's see here. So I'm going to begin. This is on page one. Looks like he has Shemot Rabbah 1.8. OK, but he's going to drop the verse here. He says, um, B'nai Yisrael were fruitful and teamed, increased and became very strong, very much so. And the land became filled with them. All right, that's from Shemot 1.5. And then it says, so Shemot Rabbah 1.8, Rashi comments, they would give birth to six children from a single pregnancy. Dot Zekanim of the Tosafotes, Tosafis, the Tosafotis, basically. There's a thing called the Tosafot in the Talmud, and the uh, Dot Zekanim is of that group. Okay, so it's a group of the sages there, basically commentators says they write that they derived this fact from the Torah's use of six terms to describe their multiplication. And then he says, I want to uh, come in with uh, Shir Hashirim 8.5. And he says, when it was time for them to give birth, they would go and give birth in the field beneath the apple tree as it says in Shira Shireem 8.5, quoting Sota 11b, by the way. And it says that beneath the apple tree, I, arou- I roused you, etc. HaKadosh Baruchu would send someone, literally an Amalek, an angel, or a Na'ar. Okay, he would send a Na'ar, which is a youth, from the heavens above, who would clean and straighten them. The midwife, just like the midwife who straightens the child, this Na'ar Malak basically would gather two round loaves for them, one of oil and one of honey, as it says in Devarim 32, 13. He would nurse him with honey from a stone and oil, etc. When the Egyptians would discover the babies, they would come to kill them. But a miracle occurred on their behalf, and they were swallowed up by the ground. Then they, the Egyptians, would bring oxen and plow on top of them, as it says to Helene 129.3, on my back the plowers plowed. After the Egyptians went away, the babies would spring forth like grass of the field, as it says in Jehezekiel 16.7, I made you as numerous as the plants of the field. When they grew up, they would come as flocks upon flocks to their homes, as it says in the same place, 
you increased and grew and you be, and you came with ornaments upon ornaments. Do not read it as written ornaments upon ornaments, but rather as flocks upon flocks. It's a, a pun with the Hebrew word there. So this is why here at Lapid we love puns because it's literally in our commentaries. So anyway, the same word for ornaments is the same word for flocks. And continuing on, it says, So when Hakadosh Baruchu revealed himself at the sea, they recognized him first. As it says, Shemot 15.2, This is my God, and I will beautify him. So just remember that as well, as we are the first ones to know who the Messiah Yeshua is before the redemption happens. May we be the first ones to say, Okay, yeah, you know, pointing with our finger at Hashem saying this is our God. It will beautify him. And that's another reason why we wrap the zitzit around our pinky finger. Because we're beautifying the writing of the Torah. Because with the finger of Hashem, he wrote the Torah. Uh, G. Shekel brought that down in a bunch of crazy midrash this week. And... Um, I just want to go to Shemot 15.2 real quick and see if, uh, you know, I got a, we had a humash myself and Mazel. We were talking about we had a humash. We couldn't find it. And it was just like people were asking, hey, Matt, can I borrow your humash? And I was like, yeah, I would love to do that, but I don't have one. And they're like, you don't have a humash? And Baruch Hashem, my Ema, was there and she was like, oh, Benny. I think I have your humash. And she totally had my humash. And I was like, Mazel, look, here's our humash. You know, and like we have it. And I was like, see, I got a humash here. You can borrow it. <laughs> so shouts out to Ema on that one. Uh, that was kind of a funny moment. But anyway, um, if we look at Shemot 15 too, this is my God and I will exalt him. In the humash, it says, uh, Ze'eli, this is my God. So clear was the manifestation of godliness to them that every Jew, even the humblest, let's back up, well, clear, was the manifestation of godliness, Hashem, to them, the people, that every Jew, even the humblest, could literally point with his finger and say, this is my God, Rashi. The sages comment in a similar vein, that the males who had been saved from Paro's decree of infanticide recognized God as their savior and pointed to him because of our Midrash from Soto 11b and from Shemot Rabbah 1.8. Or Hakim derives from the sequence of the verse that first a Jew should develop faith in God from his personal experience. My God who saved me. That's what that means. My God who saved me is you have personal experience with developed faith in Hashem. So this is why, this is where the whole, do you know the Lord Messiah Yeshua is your personal savior? That's where that comes from because, and, and the way it's taught nowadays, obviously is not taught like what this commentary is bringing down, but that's what it should mean. So if you ever have anyone come up to you, is the, do you have a personal savior? So it's like, so bring the Jewish mentality to that person. You say, are you trying to say that first as a Jew, I should develop faith in God? And from my personal experience, I can say my God who saves me. And then obviously that would be a blue screen because they're like, wait, Jewish. And then wait, 
what what did you just say to me? He was like, well, what did you just ask me? Because I just answered you. I didn't just walk away. Like backing into a bush. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, anyway, so... But no, seriously, just lay that truth down. Like, if you want to have, if you want to talk personal savior, then we should be developing our faith in God from our personal experiences. We should be personally walking with God and personally walking in these mitzvot. Okay, if you're a guy, put your zitzit on and wear a head covering. Okay, maybe you're not at keepa level yet, but you you're good with a skull cap or. A beanie or man, they make beanies like look so beautiful today. You know, uh, wear your hat, wear something, cover your head. OK. And you got your ZZ on and you now get to have some personal experiences of your developing faith because part of wearing your ZZ. I mean, I was going to say this later in the Josh, but it, this is already later in the Josh. So I'm going to say it now the four expressions of salvation that we read about in this week's Torah portion. Where are we at here? Um, Shemot 6. It's in here. Yeah, it's verse 6. So, 6-6. Six, six. Alright, good. Shemot 6-6. Six, six. It's this. Or, I don't know. Shemot 6-6. Six, six. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, here we go. I am Hashem, and I shall take you out from under the burdens of Egypt. That's one zitzit. I shall rescue you from their service. Two zitzit. I shall redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Three zitzit. I shall take you from me. I shall take you to me for a people, and I shall be a God to you, and you shall know that I am Adonai, your God, who takes you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Four zitzit. And I shall bring you to the land about which I raised my hand to give it to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Page flip. And I shall give it to you as a heritage. That's all four ZZ coming together like when we say the Shema, like gathering us in from the four corners of the earth, like like we gather in the ZZ from the four corners. Okay? So anyway, our those are called the four expressions of salvation, by the way. Or we could say the five expressions of salvation, or we can just say the Shema. So if you're if you have salvation, you have the Shema. But anyway, um, have that experience as a guy. So yeah. Put on Zitzit and experience God. If you're a lady, you know, light some Shabbat candles. Oh, my word. Just light it up and it will light you up. This is your time to go into the Holy of Holies or stand at the parochial, however you want to label it, with Hashem. You are, you are the closest to Hashem that you will ever be in your week as when you're standing at those two candles. So light those Shabbat candles and, and watch your Shabbat just... If you've never had a Shabbat before, you, I mean, I'm telling you, you just got to do it. Uh, it's also a great time to make intercession for your family, to make intercession for anything going on in your life, um, ladies, on the uh, Shabbat candles. And, uh, you know, Hashem is listening. And, yeah, you're, you're going to have a Miriam moment at that point. You know, Miriam brought in the light of the world. So... That's what's happening on Arab Shabbat. You're bringing in the light of the world. You're like literally getting to birth Messiah Yeshua spiritually. So when you light those lights, that's the two Mashiachs that you're just bringing into the world. Could you imagine 
if the whole world was doing that anyway so that's the first part of this is my god the commentary goes on to say slika that uh and then relate it to his legacy of faith from my father the same sequence is found at the beginning of the shimone esrei where we describe hashem first as our god and then as the god of our forefathers ramban with a noon ramban notes that this verse uses the abbreviated form of the name yod hey and the next verse uses the full name yod k vav k the shorter form sometimes indicates the full degree of his greatness that or slika indicates that the full degree of his greatness has been hidden from the world due to man's shortcomings this shorter form sometimes indicates that the full degree of his greatness has been hidden from the world due to man's shortcomings you know i think about yokanon chapter one where it's like he came to his own but them you know not receiving him but to many as did receive him he gave the right to become sons of god you know and it's like the yod and hey stand for none other than yeshua hamashiach you know which is the degree of greatness of hashem that had to be um, what does it say that sometimes in the case, the full degree of his greatness has been hidden. So he's the hidden one. He hides the greatness of Hashem within him. Okay. Um, so this is why the transfiguration account is so incredible. Cause that's like when he really lets it all hang out, the glory, you know, just shows up and then nobody can see anything. But anyway, it says, thus Israel was declaring that they would strive to honor and elevate man's perception of God so that he would be recognized in his full glory as a Shem master of war. You may notice I said Yud K, Vav K, and that's a, a Hasidic way of protecting the name of a Shem. You know how we say Hashem instead of saying, you know, the Tetragrammaton like Adonai, which by the way, we say Adonai during reading and prayer time. And colloquial, when we're just having conversation or things like that, we say Hashem. So another way to also safeguard Hashem is to say the Yod K Vav K, or the Yod and K and Vav and K. And it's like anytime you see a Hey, you can change that to a Kaf, which I'm kind of wondering what's up with that letter-wise, because this is how you hear Elokeinu, Elokim, Kel you know, which are all like changing the letters of these divine names of Hashem so that you can safeguard from actually saying the actual word and give it a little bit more sanctity. Because you see, as Jews, we want to protect Hashem's name and regard it as something valuable, just like we protect the private parts of our body and regard them as something valuable and we just don't have them all out in the open. Okay, and so I do mean the explicit private parts, but as well as, you know, as guys, we don't need to be running around with really, really short shorts and super big tank tops, like showing all of our stuff off, you know, cover that stuff up. And so that's kind of the picture that we also take with the names of Hashem. We also cover that stuff up like we 
revere Hashem. And it's not a whole like, I can't believe you just said Hashem and you didn't just say, you know, the Yod and Hey and the Vav and K or, or in any of those kinds of things. And like truly like butcher and slander his name and all sorts of stuff like nothing like that. Don't get it misunderstood. But just when you hear those uh, words, it's not anything different. It's just a way of of putting some more layers on to to cover it up, to make it zanut. OK, modesty, modesty. That's what we're going for. And when you do modesty, you don't do modesty in a way that is arrogant. You don't do modesty in a way of like, <laughs> I've covered up my legs today. How about you? Oh, you didn't? You know, you don't do it like that. Now, so anyway, so the Yod and K, or the Yud K, which is the two letters of Hashem as opposed to four letters, is the hiding of Hashem's greatness. And it's also the acronym of Yeshua HaMashiach. And so what they're saying here is that we strive to honor and elevate man's perception of God. That's what we're doing. And it's a whole thing about taking steps towards we're progressing in our faith. So there's a sequence. First, we develop faith in God and then we relate to his legacy of faith from our father. OK, so we make it our own and then attach it to what our forefathers have done, which is when we look at us coming to the mountain and seeing it on fire, but our forefathers didn't have to come to the mountain. They were beyond that. They were like, everything that the mountain brought forth for us, that's where they started from. That's why Abraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov didn't need to really know anything about the Yod and Hay with the Vav and Hay. Like, they were just like, you can call yourself whoever you want to call yourself, which, by the way, would be Eye, which is the name that Hashem told Moshe at the burning bush. And they say... It's not about that. You, whatever you said, we're going to do. Before you even tell us, we're doing it. Before we even understand it, we're doing it. That's what we got to get to. But we can't go there without first having our own foundation and trusting Hashem and experiencing our faith with Him. Because if you don't have any personal experience and stock and being connected and attached with Hashem, all you're going to do is have the faith of your parents. And it's not going to be yours so therefore, anything about it that's too hard for you, or that challenges you, that pushes you to the end of your rope, you're like, man, I'm done with this. But if you truly know Hashem, and if you truly love Hashem, and you've been walking with Hashem, and you've been experiencing Hashem, that's going to be harder to walk away from. Because at the end of your rope, you can go, oh, I've been here before. It sucks, but I've been here before. And I know what's up. And I know my God and I don't want to ever be without my God. And Lapid, listen, that's where we got to be for real, because every single day we get an off ramp opportunity to not be a Lapid, to put our torch on the ground, to let the fire go out and to go back into a world of irrelevance and to be after the lust and the passions and the pride of life. We have that opportunity every single day. So be where we stand unless we fall. So anyway, um, that is the Midrash that Rabbi Griffin was alluding to uh, for Parsha Shemot about the angel who took care of the children and the children who grew up. And at the Yom Suf, when the Yom Suf parted, they saw Hashem and they said, this is my God. And um, connect that with when we say Vezot Torah, because 
as us who know that the living word is Messiah Yeshua, then, you know, when we're pointing at him, we know that that's the one who brought us to Hashem and connects us to him. And there was something I was looking at, and I don't even know where I can find it, but it was saying that the Torah is a unifying agent. Oh, I took a picture of it. I'm going to read it. Uh, this is from Captain Yisrael's notes from the Drosh. Uh, confession, Cap, I got into your files and I had to pull this. So anyway, um, well, I just did a public confession. <laughs> but it's good, though. We have to have it. This is uh, from the Arch Scroll on Yom Kippur. And it's talking about the triple bond. This is on page 39 from the Arch Scroll series. Yom Kippur, its significances, laws, and prayers. That's the source. It says, the Torah is the agent that unites a Jew with God, the recipient with the giver. If he denies the validity of the Torah, he severs his connection with God. There's that. So how we know our Messiah and we point at him and we say this is our God. Yeah. Okay. So Hashem. All right. You were awesome. Okay. So another thing from Parashat Shemot that we thought was really cool was Moshe identifying with his people because Moshe didn't grow up in a Jewish household and all that. But, you know, he spent, a, he spent some time with his Ima, you know, to be raised up. But there wasn't like he grew up in the home and like went through his bar mitzvah and all that kind of stuff with uh, Yaakovid and Amram. But so we were looking through the Midrash and, you know, this is pretty much chapter two. It says Moshe identifies its people. So this is from the art scroll Humash, because, you know, we got one of those. Uh, page 298 at the bottom. Moshe had been raised in the splendor and anti-Semitism of the palace. Come on, man. Raised up in anti-Semitism and you're going to be the redeemer of Israel. You're going to be a Baal Shuva. Are you kidding me? Let us not be afraid anymore to reach out to those who we think are so like, I don't even know why I would t teach toward to this person because they're anti-Semitic to the core. They're 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 a Christian. They don't want to be Jewish or they hate Jews or they don't want that Jewish stuff. It's like, Moshe was raised up in that. Come on. Now, anyway, just side note on that. But he remained the son of Amram and Yaakovid. This is the equivalent. Rabbi Griffin brought this down last week when it was talking about in Egypt or in uh, Yosef was in Egypt. And then the commentary said, but Egypt was not in Yosef. So while Yosef was the king and everything over Egypt, the viceroy, he literally became king, by the way after the pharaoh that he was viceroy to passed because you know when you're a viceroy you take over after the main guy dies so when that pharaoh passed yosef became a king of egypt you know so there's that as far as the movies go yosef king of egypt but um egypt wasn't in yosef but yosef was in egypt kind of thing so same thing here with moshe is saying that even though he was in paro's house he was in the anti-Semitism. He was in the splendor of the palace. He that was not in him. He what was in him was Amram, which was like one of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people, and Yaakovid, who was just like literally, uh, as far as the commentary goes, confused with 
when the Shekinah of Hashem manifested as a person and walked into the exile with the children of Israel. So the glory of Hashem, basically, because Yaakovid means, you know, Hashem and glory, like the glory of Hashem or my glory, Hashem's glory, however you want to put it. It's Kavod and the Tetragrammaton. That's Yaakovid. That's what her name is. Anyway, and she gave birth to the Redeemer. So when the Shekinah manifested as a person, she gave birth to the Redeemer of Israel. I mean, come on. Not a virgin birth, but I mean, come on. The the Redeemer is born through the Shekinah is what I'm getting at. Okay, but then it says, though his mother had him for only the earliest years of his life, she succeeded so well in imbuing him with love and loyalty to his people that despite his royal upbringing, he did not become an Egyptian prince, but remained a Jew. So uh, the Moshe movie called The Prince of Egypt, not so much. And then it says, as he matured, he displayed the compassion for the downtrodden that stamped him as the future redeemer of Israel. As he matured, he displayed the compassion for the downtrodden that stamped him as the future redeemer of Israel. As he matured, he displayed the compassion for the downtrodden that stamped him as the future redeemer. This is why Mashiach Yeshua says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. The greatest among you is a servant. And whenever you do that, do anything, any kind service to the least of them, you've done it to me. I got compassion for the downtrodden. Hasiz brought down in last week's Haftarah that David was so awesome because he had compassion for the downtrodden. You know, like David would take out the flock and, and have them graze in such a way that the young sheep and the old sheep and that whole span could just be, you know, um, they could be all taken care of. They, that everyone could eat grass, you know, there was like tough grass and soft grass. And obviously the uh, older sheep, the stronger sheep could take out the tough grass so that the younger grass would be available or the uh, softer grass would be available for the younger sheep. So he created a grazing pattern so that all the sheep could have their, their fill without affecting the other, not getting what they could be able to literally chew and digest. So having compassion, man, I think, I mean, that's, that's just incredible. When you think about Mashiach being on the crucifixion stake and there's a thief next to him who's truly making Teshuvah because he never met Yeshua before, but he heard about him and now he's having an encounter with him the last moments of his life. And Mashiach Yeshua says, you know what? Today you'll be with me in paradise because what you're doing right now is you're making yourself very downtrodden, you know, and I got compassion for that. So, yeah. So the Midrash says we were looking at was just bringing out some things about uh, Moshe just being uh, having compassion for the people. Let's see if I can find it. Um, I mean, I don't even know if I can do it. Let me see. How do we do this over here? I had up our files. I was looking through them. I was just like, yeah, let me just see what we got. 
you know, we've been collecting pictures for a little while. Midrash says, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, this is from the Midrash says, page 22. The Egyptian palace with all its splendor and luxuries could have provided Moshe with an easy and comfortable youth. But far from becoming self-indulgent, Moshe, as soon as he learned of his Jewish origins, left the palace every day to visit his brothers in the labor camps, pretending that he was assisting the Egyptian taskmasters. He inclined his shoulders and carried the heavy burdens together with B'nai Yisrael. He wept at their pain, mourning. Your tortures hurt me too. I only wish I could die for you. Uh, Neri wrote, because you know how he always is. He goes, that's uh, Hebrews eleven twenty four. By trusting, Moshe, after he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes fixed on their reward. Okay, so first of all, that was way uncalled for. Second of all, the suffered on the behalf of the Messiah. So the suffering that the B'nai Israel are going through under the persecution of Egypt is called suffering on behalf of the Messiah. So if we're suffering under the oppression of the exile, that is the suffering of Messiah. And earlier in this podcast, for those of us who remember, because uh, I know it was a long time ago, I said that if we don't suffer with Messiah Yeshua, we can't reign with him. And the Shekinah is also in exile as we are in exile, suffering with us. And then Mashiach is sitting at the gates of the Rome, suffering with the lepers. So like he's in exile with us. Like, are you kidding me right now? So that was one thing. Let's bring it home. Uh, we're going to go back now that we're in Parshavah era. I want to go to um, Rabbi g -Bomb. So Rabbi Avraham Greenbaum, he's a new guy that uh, I've been kind of tracking with for about probably a year now, but never really get a chance to talk about. He's just basically, I call him that because he like, I don't know what to call it. If you took a grenade launcher and turned it into a machine gun, but still it shot grenades. That's what he is. So he's like grenade, you know, Rabbi Grenade. And it's like, that's, that's unfair. Like, so he's, uh, dropping some stuff here and I want to see if I can, uh, just kind of elucidate it because, you know, this is the tour portion of the plagues, Sleka. And, um, it's so easy to just kind of talk about the frogs and the blood and the staffs becoming snakes. And yes, I'm quoting everything out of order, but, um, I love where Rabbi G-Bomb went with this. Let's see here. Here we go. In the event, God took on the harder task of bringing down Paro 
and breaking his stony heart. Mm. Hashem will break our stony heart. He will remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. It, the thing is, though, is are we willing to just say, Hashem, here, take my stony heart, give me a heart of flesh, or no, Hashem, my heart, I don't want a heart of flesh. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to have to break you. But anyway, that's a swerve. <clears throat> so back over here to Mr. Rabbi Greenbaum. He says, this what or this was what would make B'nai Yisrael listen. So, if, so basically he just brought out that when God breaks the stony heart of Pero, which is the evil speech, by the way, Pyro is evil speech, or Oref, which is a rearrangement of those letters, which means the back of the neck. So, and remember, if you don't redeem the donkey with a lamb, in other words, you don't have a lamb to bring redemption for Egypt because Egypt is the flesh of a donkey that's brought down in Ezekiel. And you have to axe the back of his neck. That's one of the Torah prohibitions. When you have a donkey and it has a firstborn, you got to redeem it with a lamb. But if you don't, you have to axe the back of his neck. So it's just kind of like this donkey didn't have to die because you can you can go find a lamb. You can go find redemption. But any, anyway, so uh, and Akav was bringing down this whole thing from the Kabbalah about how the neck uh, being severed was causing shortness of breath. And um, so, I mean, there's this whole thing connected to that. But the point here, if we just kind of bring it back way down to Peshat and stay on a simple level without swerving anymore, that when Hashem would break Paro, that this would cause the Shema of the children of Israel. So when they would be able to see that Hashem has destroyed the Egyptians, that would free them up to finally hear Hashem, which is the only way that the children of Israel were able to say, Na'asebe Nishma, when they did, when they got to the mountain, because they knew they were out of Egypt, and they saw that Pharaoh and the Egyptians were drowned in the Amsuf. So anyway, I continue over here. No more interruptions. This was what would make the children of Israel listen. This was accomplished through the ten plagues. The gripping account of the first seven plagues occupied the greater part of this week's parasha of Vaera. While next week's parasha Bo brings us to the climax with the last three plagues in the Exodus itself. Many have sought to explain the sequence of plagues according to some rationale. One of the most celebrated explanations is that mentioned by Rashi on Shemot 8.17, quoting from Midrash Tankuma, Parsha Bo number 4, a Tanaic source. Okay, I said no more interruptions, but I'm going to interrupt because that's so exciting. If you're a person who is a Rashi carrier, Rashi, not, well, I don't know how much percentage-wise, but he usually, mostly, quotes the Midrash Tankuma. So when you hear, all you need to do is get you a Humash and get you some Rashi, trust me, that is, that is a ninja arsenal, because Midrash Tankuma is what I like to consider the West Coast gangster of all the Midrashim. It is... The Midrash that drives by, rolls the window down, sticks the gun out the window sideways, and sprays up the place. 
It truly is. It's like 1990s West Coast gangster. Like that is the Midrash Tankuma. So Rashi, that is usually what he quotes from. And here we got Rabbi Greenbaum saying, yeah, so check out this explanation of the 10 plagues from Rashi quoting the Midrash Tankuma. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because if you're if you can get the Midrash Tankuma, it trust me, it's worth your money. All right. So anyway, uh, I love the Midrash Tankuma, if you couldn't tell. Our rabbis of blessed memory said HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought the plagues upon them using the tactics of worldly kings. When a region rebels against a king of flesh and blood, he sends his legions to surround it. The first thing he does is to shut off their water supply. If they relent, all the better. If not, he brings against them criers with loud voices, then arrows, barbarian hordes. He hurls heavy weights at them, shoots burning oil, fires cannon, rouses multitudinous armies against them, imprisons them, kills their great ones. In the same way, Hakadosh Baruchu came against the Egyptians with the tactics of kings. With the plague of blood, he stopped up their water supply. The criers were the frogs with their loud croaking. His arrows were the fleas. His barbarian hordes were the wild animals. The heavy weights were the heavily heavy pestilence that killed their livestock. The burning oil was the, was the boils. The cannon shots were the hail. The multitudinous armies were the locusts. The Egyptians were imprisoned through the plague of darkness. Finally, he killed their great ones and the plague of the firstborn. A Kabbalistic explanation of the sequence and rationale of the plagues is provided in the writings of the Ari and Sha'ar HaBesukim, which is the gate of the verses, Parashavaera. The ten plagues correspond to the ten sephirot, did all that. And then um, he said one thing about great ones. Where did he put it? He said the firstborn are called. Yeah, he killed their great ones in the plagues of the firstborn. And uh, it says in Egypt, the firstborns are considered to be like gods, basically. So let's see. Let me give you that real quick. This is Zohar drop. Okay, Zohar 229a. HaKadosh Baruchu began from the lowest grade, smiting each one in succession with every finger of his hand. And when he reached the highest, he himself passed through Egypt and slew all the firstborn in the land as the firstborn represented the highest and choicest grade of all. Again, that is Zohar 2.29a. The killing of the firstborn representing an independent entity. I'm just trying to find, make sure I didn't miss anything. So, yeah, firstborns, pretty intense. That's why God says I will bring judgment on their gods. Which, let me see. I know the Humash over here. <clears throat> it's going to have something about it. Yeah, the plague of the firstborn. Okay. So every firstborn, so this is Shemot 12, 
uh, 29, and I'm on page 357 in the Art Scroll Humash. Every firstborn. Paro was the only firstborn to be spared so that he could tell the world about God's greatness. The Egyptian firstborn died because they had persecuted the Jews. Those of the captives died because they enjoyed Jewish suffering or so that they would not be able to claim that their idols had protected them. The plague struck down not only those who were known to be firstborn, but also the eldest children of men who lived with women other than their wives in a country as licentious couldn't control themselves. So they were just doing a whole bunch of improper things. So in a country as licentious as Egypt, this meant that a woman could have had many firstborn whose paternity was known only to Hashem. So now you got one woman who's got a bunch of firstborns in her house that are possibly perishing. Or she has many, possibly has many firstborns in her house who will perish. I don't know about you, but that's, that's just disturbing on top of tra traumatic. So then it says, in addition, if there were no firstborn in a house, the oldest member of the household died. This was why the next verse states that there was a dead person in every house and why the Egyptians could think, verse 33, that they were all dying. That's from Rashi. In the plain sense of the verse, however, uh, the only, only the firstborn of the mothers died. That's from Ramban. And it says, if so, that the Egyptians spoke of every house having a corpse was an indication of the national panic but was not meant literally either way between those two commentaries that is a don't get you some um let's see here when we talk about the plague here i remember it being in the text about what's going to happen when hashem does this judgment here where does it say it at we get into Pesach right before doing that, which I think is funny. So it's like, let's talk about the firstborn. Oh, let's go to Pesach real quick. It's like, really? Okay. The warning of the plague of the firstborn. This is Shemot 11. So Adonai said to Moshe, one more plague. Oh, page 347. One in the Arch scroll Humash. One more plague shall I bring upon Paro and upon Egypt after that. He shall send you forth from here. When he sends forth, it shall be complete. He shall drive you out of here. Okay, so all of that. Uh, and then verse four. At about midnight, I shall go out in the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land shall die from the firstborn of Pyro who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the millstone the firstborn of every beast. There shall be a great outcry in the entire land of Egypt, such as there has never been and such as there will, shall never be again. But against the children of Israel, no dog shall wet its tongue against neither man nor beast, so that you shall know that Adonai will have differentiated between Egypt and Israel. 
Then all the servants of yours will come down to me and bow to me, saying, leave you and your entire people that follows you. OK, uh, real quick on footnotes. Um, it says in verse five, every firstborn shall die. Even the firstborn of the poor and underprivileged would die foreign captives so that they would not attribute their survival to the power of their idols. The firstborn children of lowly Egyptian maidservants because they too enjoyed the suffering of the Jews and the firstborn of animals because the Egyptians worshipped them. And God exacts judgments against the gods of sinners. So that's what I was thinking about, about, you know, Hashem says I'm going to bring judgment on their gods. And it was just like in the plague of the firstborn that was happening. It was just like, okay, so part of it is they worshipped um, the animals as gods. So those animals that they worship were going to die as well as the firstborns were going to die because the Egyptians were thinking their idols could protect them. So Midrash is crazy about how um, there was this whole thing about hiding Egyptian children in the temples and next to their statues and things like that, because they're like, these gods are going to protect my child. And then hiding Egyptians in the beds of the Jews and uh, doing that whole thing. And it's just like, yeah, surely my child being next to a Jew and touching him will not uh, cause his death. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. You know, so take that back to the illusion of grabbing onto the zizit of a Jew. Like it's not salvation by proximity and contact, but it's salvation by a renewed heart. And a changed mind. You got to be born again from above. John chapter 3 is what we're talking about. Um, again, over here on uh, page 346, it's talking about the warning of the plague of the firstborn. It says, One more plague. As noted above, God told Moshe about this plague as soon as Pyro demanded that he leave the palace. Our verse alludes to the plague only briefly, but God conveyed it to him in full detail as it is described later in the chapter, and Moshe repeated it in full to the king. Um, yeah. So anyway, death of the firstborn is a plague on, you know, the gods of Egypt as well. So, how are we going to finish this thing? Why don't we finish this talking about Shaddai? Okay, because this is something that is absolutely monumental the way that uh, G. Shekel broke this down. But first, I want to start with what um, I want to start with what basically Dr. Sakal brought down. He did this whole crazy drop as his introduction uh, for being a new Avenger. So when Dr. Sakal turned forty. I just put his age out there, but he's not 40 anymore. He's actually younger now because, you know, as he matures, he gets more youthful. And, uh, you know, he's like a really uh, young, mature guy. So, you know, that's how we roll in the kingdom. We grow older, but we get younger. We get more mature and we get more youthful. So, you know, there is that. But anyway, so it he was getting ready to like have his birthday and it was like the birthday boy. So for his birthday that year, he became a Avenger, which was really cool. 
because, um, you know, it was just the four Avengers. It was just, well, the five of us. It was Captain, it was Hulk, it was Iron Man, it was Spider-Man, it was the Mighty Hover, you know, and like, that was it. But then we just had a whole slew of Avengers come in uh, just to kind of do that, which was amazing. So one of them was Doctor Strange. And so Doctor Strange is uh, his, like when we look at Doctor Strange from a Jewish point of view, it is Dr. Sakal. Sakal is the Hebrew word for knowledge and insight. So you may recognize that word Sakal from the bracha in the Amidah where we ask Hashem to imbue us with wisdom, insight, and knowledge and discernment, you know. So anyway, Sakal is part of that. So here's what he decided to text me on that day, like, like he thought it was okay. And we've been texting ever since then, which is kind of cool, which kind of, I guess, uh, <laughs> nullifies my previous statement like it was okay. Apparently it was okay. But that's usually what that means when I say, oh, you just did that like it was okay. Is that what we do now? That really is saying, no, that is okay. And that is what we do now. So it's just like a reverse little fun joke thing. I don't know. Anyway, to the drop, it says Elohim spelled out gives you the formula for pi. When you spell out Elohim, it gives you three point one four one five. OK, how do you spell out Elohim when you got Olive, which is one, you got Lamed which is 30, which is one of the things in Gematria is you take off the zeros and go down to the lowest number. So that means 30s would be 3s, 100 would be 1, 50 would be 5, so on and so forth. So back to Elohim. So spell it out, gives you the formula for pi. So you got Aleph, which is 1, Lamed, which is 3, He, which is 5, Yod, which is 1, because 10 would be 1, and then Mem, is four. And so now once you get one, three, five, one, four, now go counterclockwise from the number three. So start with the Lamed and go backwards. So you got three, one, four, one, five. So Lamed, Aleph, Mem, Yod, Hey. Okay. So go in a circle, basically counterclockwise. That's pretty crazy. That's your 314. And he says pi is the diameter of a circle. Okay. So when you're in circles and you want to get the circumference. Okay. Or yeah. So you, you get the radius and then you get the whole the line. So double the radius up basically. Pi is the diameter of a circle. So the radius and the diameter is what, I'm, what I was thinking. So pi r squared is the formula for the when you get the radius to get the diameter which is pi because the radius you square it and that's how you get all that but anyway pi is the diameter of a circle uh and a bezrat hashem i got that right on my math terminology so for all of you math people because i'm a math person but i haven't done anything with pi other than eat it in a long time so <laughs> i apologize if i've not appropriate on all those as far as like the actual technicalities of everything 
But I know there's a radius and there is a diameter. And pi is the diameter of a circle. So anyway, so it says thus separating the heavens and the earth or dividing light from darkness. OK, so that's Elohim. So in Hashem is the only way you can have a distinction, which if you look at Parshava era, the whole thing is about making a distinction. B'nai Yisrael are in exile, but are we distinguished from the exile which we are in? Are we in the exile and the exile not in us? Or are we in exile and the exile is in us? That's the question we got to ask ourselves because we just saw Moshe and we just saw Yosef who were both in Egypt, but Egypt was not in them. So as we're in this exile of Rome, are we in the exile of Rome without Rome in us or is Rome in us while we're in this exile? Because if, if Rome is in us, we need to get it out. And so being in Hashem, this whole thing about being distinguished, Okay, we must be distinct. Hashem is going to differentiate between his people and the nations. Okay, and the nations 